Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? I'm glad to see Bill Real is in the house at the last moment. Yeah, yeah. I got here a little late, two minutes before we started, and then you had a little technical issue before we began. Yes. Well, Maven showed up after you showed up, and as soon as she showed up, I went on the blink. Yeah, well, you're back non-blinking, so here we go. How's your week been, RFM? Absolutely fantastic. I've been spending untold amounts of time researching this issue By the way, tonight's show is about the perennial question, did God have sex with Mary? That would be the Virgin Mary, by the way. We're going to find out, aren't we? Oh, yeah. We're absolutely going to get to the bottom of this one tonight. Yeah, we get to the bottom of it. I will tell you that one of the things that made this so difficult for me as far as research goes is that there's a plethora of websites that have all these quotes on them dealing with this issue. Most of them would be called anti-Mormon or critical websites. But going through them, I wanted to try and find the original documents as much as I could. And in so doing, I found that there were a lot of wrong sites in these documents and some apparent misquotes or at least quotes that I didn't find in the original documents when I finally found them sometimes on a different page than what was given as the source. So eventually, we've pretty much nailed this down. I think that we're pretty darn accurate with our sourcing tonight since we're going to the original documents. And Maven has been working very hard to get these things ready so that they can be put up on the screen. There will be a lot of reading tonight, and I apologize for that. We'll have a lot of great Mormonism Live commentary. But this is going to be very document-based in this uh, presentation tonight because I think that's important that we actually get to the documents. I'm super excited. And we've I think we've got a document or two that uh, that no one's ever seen before, number one. And uh, somebody here saying, Bill, give us a goal for today. I mean, I think ideally every show we'd love to raise like 500 bucks. Um, but I always find it to be more important that we try to get um, recurring subscribers that donate. So if you go to mormonismlive.org and uh, click the donate button, send RFM and myself a few bucks. It could be three bucks a month, five bucks a month, 25 bucks a month, 100 bucks a year. You pick. And also don't forget, uh, to like and subscribe. You'll see that button down there in the corner of the video. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel so that when new stuff comes out, you're seeing it. And uh, we very much appreciate everybody who does donate. Um, we're, we're doing well. I mean, donations have slowed off and on throughout the year, um, but we're doing well and things are going good. And I think we put out a really good show. Well, we're certainly going to try our best to do that tonight. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Okay, well, hopefully it will match up to your expectations. Yeah, yeah, we're surpassing. (laughs) All right, so here's the thing, okay? There is this perennial doctrine, like I mentioned, in the LDS Church, or at least whispered about in the foyer sometimes, 
during church when you're supposed to be in your class, but you're out in the foyer and you hear the whisperings about this idea that God actually had sex with Mary in order to produce and conceive the body, the physical body of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, had you ever heard that, Bill? When I joined the church and was diving into the criticisms and apologetics, what I found, and I, I know that this is a lot of what you found early on too, is that Mormonism, you're only looking inside the church. And so you're reading where apologists uh, such as Farms or early on Fair Mormon or that Book of Mormon Answer Man on the New Jerusalem site that I used to look at, they would always give you the criticisms. Here's what the critic says, and here's how we answer it. And when it came to this particular issue, uh, you know, they would say the critic says that uh, Mormonism taught that God had sex with Mary to produce Jesus. Here's the two quotes that they use. You will see from those quotes that they're taken out of context. They're misconstrued, misunderstood. They are intentionally. Oh, you're you're muted there, but I'm sorry. I was, to, I was adding misconceived. Yeah, and and that if you take the two quotes as they are, juxtaposed with other things in Mormonism, you can obviously come out the other side still believing that the Holy Ghost is Jesus's. Uh, uh, is the by the means by which Jesus became um, it be, got into Mary's womb, I guess, and uh, she became pregnant with him as a child. I know I'm saying it the wrong way. No, isn't she it funny that even you, even you at your point in, in post-Mormonism still are struggling for language to describe what it is. You know perfectly well that you're trying to say, but without actually coming out and saying it. Yeah, and, and, and I want to say it this way, which is that we were told like, yeah, it's not God. We don't believe that. It's the Holy Ghost, but it's not the Holy Ghost having sex with Mary. It's the Holy Ghost doing some other magic thing, hmm. and Mary's suddenly pregnant. And uh, and then I just walked away from it and thought, like, oh, okay, no biggie. It's it's we're good and dandy, no problem there. Right. Well, the way I came about this was through my home teacher. I joined the church, as everybody could probably repeat with me by now, being baptized in June of 1978. I was 18 years old. Right away, I got assigned a home teacher who was about the age of my dad. He came with a priest who was probably around my age or something, maybe a little bit younger because they didn't know this kid. But they came over regularly. They did their job once a month over to the house. We go down to the basement. We'd have the little home teaching lesson. And then for whatever reason, this home teacher, I cannot remember his name. And I don't know why he felt like he wanted to do this. But on top of the regular home teaching lesson, he decided he was going to apprise me and educate me in the finer and deeper points of Mormon doctrine. So one evening, he's getting ready to go with his priest companion, and uh, he turns to me. I think we're outside at this point, and I'm seeing him to his car, and he lets me in on the fact that Jesus was conceived by physical relations, i.e. sexual congress between God the Father and Mary. And I remember being absolutely gobsmacked over this information. I didn't question it. I mean, this guy's been a member of the church, you know, for decades. I just joined. He obviously knows what he's talking about. I know nothing. He's the teacher. I'm the teachee. And he's laying this on me out in the driveway. And I am gobsmacked. And I remember he must have seen the look on my face. And he wants to assure me that what he is saying is true. And he says, you know, if you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense. Well, he drove off into the sunset and I'm waving goodbye, feeling like I just had a tin megaton nuclear bomb go off in my underwear 
because I, I did not know what to do with this. I was really, really stunned, traumatized, maybe not too big a word, but I was really shocked by this. And it was only over time that I became accustomed to this idea and recognized that it was part and parcel of Mormon doctrine. And so when it comes up or when it came up, which it did and does from time to time, although it's brought up in a somewhat veiled way, typically nowadays when it's brought up at all, I was able to recognize it and identify it for what it was and understand what it was that the speaker was meaning by the words the speaker was using. We'll get into some of that later on tonight. So what we do have though, let me just double check the this wonderful outline we have. Somebody in the comments has already mentioned about the scene from the Godmakers. There was this cartoon that was made for the Godmakers, and part of it had to do with this element of Mormon theology. Now, obviously, the Godmakers was made by Ed Decker, an anti-Mormon. His goal is to keep people from joining the church, and he felt that this was a doctrine that might accomplish that end. So it was included in the cartoon. And Maven, Maven found it for us. Do you have that, Maven? Are you, are you there, Maven? Thousands of years later, Elohim, in human form once again, journeyed to Earth from the starbase Kolob, this time to have sex with the Virgin Mary, in order to provide Jesus with a physical body. What is wanted? <laughs> okay, so there we have the part of that cartoon, right? Now, the funny thing is, is that really the only thing that's objectionable about that, from a Mormon point of view, is A, that it's a cartoon, but, you know, it's not a Looney Tune kind of thing. They're doing their best. I, I know it's a low-budget thing, but to have people who look like people, gods who look like gods, the schnozberries taste like schnozberries, right? But the only thing that you can really... Hey, uh, hey, hey, I, I got that reference. Oh, that's like oh, Steve Rogers. Wasn't that Willy Wonka in the Chocolate movie. Factory? Absolutely. Very good. Thank you. Yes, he can be taught. The United <laughs> Way. Thanks to you. It's working. So, anyway... <laughs> But I'll bet all you can complain about that is the Starbase Kolob language, right? Which is, of course, designedly inflammatory because that's the Ed Decker that we know and love. But other than that, this is basically what the teaching of the church has been. And it is what people who study theology of the church today typically understand to have been the case. Now, when I say understand to have been the case, I'm not saying that it actually happened. Okay, I'm getting away from what happened between God and Mary. And just saying, this is actually what leaders of the church taught about what happened between God and Mary. I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened or didn't happen. Okay? I just want you to understand I'm not a witness. But I can read what readers or leaders of the church have said and written. And I can understand that that's exactly what they're saying. Did you have anything you wanted to say before we go to the first person, apparently, in church history to broach this subject? Let's dive in. Okay, so first is Brigham Young, 1852. It's April General Conference. They're in Utah now. So it's April 9th, 1852. This is from my favorite citation in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, pages 50 through 51. Now, first off, that may sound familiar to you because that is the citation of the first enunciation by Brigham Young of the Adam-God theory. But the funny thing is that if you actually read this, the Adam-God theory is a secondary element to what it is that Brigham is talking about. What he's really talking about in this section, pages 50 and 51, is the fact, or the teaching at least, it's a fact as far as he's concerned, 
that God and Mary had sexual relations, and that's how Jesus was born. Now, why is this important to Brigham Young? The reason it's important to him is because he wants it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is not the Son of the Holy Ghost. He's the Son of God. So he's doing this in a way to lift up Jesus because he thinks that Jesus being the Son of the Holy Ghost is a demotion from him because the Holy Ghost is lower than Jesus, right? right. So he's got to be higher than uh, the person who conceives Jesus has to be higher than Jesus. Well, there's only one person who's in line for that job, and that is God. So here is, if we have the um, volume one of Journal of Discourses, pages 50 and 51, we'll put those up here. And I'm going to look here at my hard copies, okay? And don't say anything about that, Bill. Okay. All right. So here we go. If we are at my next sermon on the left column, this is page 50. Do we have uh, my next sermon? It's a little bit... There you go. Thank you so much, Maven. My next sermon, this is Brigham Young. My next sermon, by the way, within each of these uh, sermons that he gives, he gives multiple mini sermons. Usually there are a number of disparate topics that he will address. Right after he gets done talking about this, for instance, in the same sermon, he's going to go into the subject of tithing, believe it or not. So here's where he says, my next sermon. My next sermon will be to both saint and sinner. One thing has remained a mystery in this kingdom up to this day. It is in regard to the character of the well-beloved Son of God, upon which subject the elders of Israel have conflicting views. Now, it is interesting that even as of 1852, apparently he's acknowledging that the elders of the church, the only people that Brigham Young would be calling the elders of Israel, have conflicting views on the subject. But he's here to set the matter straight. And if we can scroll, and when I say down, you'll be scrolling that way. Yes, that's the direction I'm talking about. Thank you. Going down the page to this point in, and if you could keep going, I'm actually going to, I've edited this a bit so that we, I'm not reading quite so much. But the question right there where it says the question, you've got it. Perfect. The question has been and is often asked who it was that begat the son of the Virgin Mary? Because that question is being asked all the time. I mean, hasn't that been your experience, Bill? Everybody's asking this question. Uh, okay. Say, I'm sorry. I'm trying to go through the outline and mark the spots where I need to speak up. And so would you ask, <laughs> okay. ask it again. Okay. Uh, uh, just, just play along with me on this one. This is, this yeah, is not asking for a, this is rhetorical. Tor totally get it. Okay. Uh, where he says the question has been and is often asked who it was to beget the son of the Virgin Mary. And I'm saying, yeah, that comes up all the time. Isn't Nobody asked question? that question until uh, I didn't even know the question was askable until somebody said, here's what the critic says. And it's and it's not serious. So don't worry about it. Right. So he's, yeah. he's saying that everybody is asking this question because apparently no, there is something about Mary. Hey, hey, Brigham. Hey, Brigham. Who who's Jesus's father? Who Who is who's the person? Like, yeah, that doesn't make it's just sense. like a line of people. It's like a wedding reception. Everybody's <laughs> asking this question. So he's going to set the record straight. It's 1852. This is a very important sermon on this point because really you would have to have an IQ of less than room temperature to be able to misunderstand what Brigham Young is saying here. I'll continue. The infidel world, thats that means non-Mormon. The infidel world have concluded that if what the apostles wrote about his father and mother be true, 
and the present marriage discipline acknowledged by Christendom be correct, then Christians must believe that God is the father of an illegitimate son in the person of Jesus Christ, exclamation point. Now, by the way, when he says, if what the apostles wrote about his father and mother be true, and the present marriage discipline acknowledged by Christendom be correct, he's talking about monogamy there. Because it's polygamy that makes the way clear for this doctrine to emerge in the mind and mouth of Brigham Young. If it weren't for polygamy, you would never even be thinking about this. So that's why this is a slam on monogamy, which is the present marriage discipline. And there frequently were, were sermons by LDS leaders that slammed monogamy and talked about the, the benefits and the superiority of polygamy over monogamy. And this is just one of those instances because it solves this problem, right? Polygamy all the way. So if all that's true, then what Brigham Young is saying is that if the non-Mormon Christian world is correct, then they have to believe that God is the father of an illegitimate son in the person of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. The infidel fraternity teach that to their disciples. I will tell you how it is. Our father in heaven, now we'll scroll up to the top of the right column, but it will say our father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were or ever will be upon this earth. We know that. And they were born spirits in the eternal world. Nothing unusual about that either. <laughs> then the Lord, by his power and wisdom, organized the mortal tabernacle of man. We were made first spiritual and afterwards temporal. Now, here's the point where he goes into that first enunciation of the Adam God theory. Where immediately after that, he begins to say, now here, O inhabitants. And by the, the way. Earth, Gentile. Yeah. By the way, when he starts off by saying, now hear it, O inhabitants of the earth, Jew, Gentile, saint, and sinner, that seems like a, like a prophet wanting to tell everyone he's a prophet, and here comes this new piece of information. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is proclaiming this to everybody. I think those categories cover pretty much everybody on the face of the earth. Right. So he's going to give this uh, announcement about Adam being God, and I'm going to skip that. Okay. But I want, to, I want you to know where it falls in the sermon. And we'll have a link to the sermon. You can look it up easily enough yourself so you can see the context. But as you go down, he comes back to this concept, which is the main driving force in this part of his sermon, where he says, when the Virgin Mary, there it is, when the Virgin Mary conceived the child Jesus, the father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. And who is the father? He is the first of the human family. So that's the end of that quote from that page. We're going to go to the page 51 here in a second, but it's very clear that he's talking about the fact that God the Father, through sexual relations with Mary, conceived the body, the physical body of Jesus Christ. Only I don't want to get if, lost in the weeds, but yeah. when he says the first of the human family, is he saying Michael, Adam, which is heavenly father because Adam, because yes. Adam, God, and then God is heavenly grandfather, right? Right. What he's saying is that Adam is the one. Adam is God and God, Adam came to Mary and they had relations and then produced the physical body of Jesus. Love it. Okay. Okay. So next page, page 51. If we can go down there, it says, it says again. Yeah. Again, they will try to tell 
how the divinity, this is talking about the other Christians, non-Mormon Christians. Again, they will try to tell how the divinity of Jesus is joined to his, oh, excuse me, let me skip down to the middle of that paragraph and go to the one where it says, Jesus, our elder brother. You can still keep it on the page just like that. This is one, some of my last minute editing to try and make this manageable. Jesus, our elder brother, was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden and who is our father in heaven. Now, let all who may hear these doctrines. Oh, that sounds like a doctrine. He mm. used the D word, didn't he? Hmm. Not a, not, he didn't that, say disavowed theory. He said doctrine. He did say doctrine. Okay, I'm, I'm making a note of that for future reference okay. at the end of this podcast. So, yeah. Now, uh, let all who may hear these doctrines pause before they make light of them or treat them with indifference, for they will prove their salvation or damnation. Now, this is going to be very interesting because at the end of tonight's episode, we're going to see how fair Fair Mormon, the apologetic front group for the LDS Church, unindicted I'm, co-conspirators. I'm familiar with them. Okay. Yeah. You used to work for these guys. You used to be yeah, one of these guys. Won an award with them. You did. And well-deserved it was. Thank you. <laughs> um, but in their response to this, what they are going to do is treat these doctrines with indifference. I think that there is no better way to describe how they treat these doc- doctrines than with indifference as they try and run away from them as fast as they possibly can and say, no, this was never actually taught or said. So now we go down to the next, okay, the next paragraph. Um, Damnation. Yeah, can we go down just a little bit further there? Thank you. I have given you a few leading items upon this subject, Brigham Young continues, but a great deal more remains to be told, I can only imagine. Now, remember from this time forth and forever, Bill, And forever, you people at Fair Mormon, now remember from this time forth and forever that Jesus Christ was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. I will repeat a little anecdote. I was in conversation with a certain learned professor upon this subject when I replied to this idea. If the Son was begotten by the Holy Ghost, it would be very dangerous to baptize and confirm females and give the Holy Ghost to them. Can you guess why, Bill? Because they might be sexually molested by the Holy Ghost. Well, yeah, and it might uh, cause conception to occur. Hmm. It would be very dangerous to baptize and confirm females and give the Holy Ghost to them, lest he should beget children to be palmed upon the elders by the people, bringing the elders into great difficulties. Can't the Holy Ghost just control himself or herself? Uh, Apparently not. I think that what Brigham Young's trying to say here, to give him the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> is that what he's saying is Jesus wasn't begotten by the Holy Ghost, because if the Holy Ghost could beget uh, children with females, then we'd have trouble when we confirm females after they're baptized in the church. We give them the gift of the Holy Ghost, they get pregnant, and now everybody's blaming the missionaries. Huh. If, if the Holy Ghost can't control himself, I wonder how in the hell the rest of us are supposed to. Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe this gives new meaning to the old expression, leave room for the Holy Ghost. Thank goodness the Holy Ghost doesn't do that. (laughs) Now, treasure up these things. This is the last paragraph in this talk. Treasure up these things, Bill, in your hearts. In the Bible, you have read the things I have told you tonight, but you have not known what you did read. I have told you no more than you are conversant with. But what do the people in Christendom, with the Bible in their hands, know about the subject? Comparatively, Nothing. 
by the way, he is giving it away that whatever he's saying is a new thing that no one else outside of Mormonism would know, which means that when apologetics come along and try to say there's nothing to see here, that makes zero sense. That is really, really interesting and a good point. By the way, Bill, can you put on your objective hat for a second? Always wearing it. Okay, so from what I've read from Brigham Young's 1852 discourse on the subject, is there any question in your mind but that he is teaching that God had sex with Mary in order to produce the physical body of Jesus? And even more than that, he's teaching that Adam, who is Michael, whose heavenly father, had sex with Mary. Right. Yep. Pretty clear, isn't it? It seems uh, demonstrable to me. By the way, this is, spoiler alert, this is one of the reasons that in the fair Mormon response that we're going to get to at the end of the tonight show, they don't mention this quote at all. They don't want to. <laughs> they don't mention this at all. By the way, I did want to say that as I've been thinking about this and researching this, it did occur to me that Joseph Smith was the one who supplied the basic building blocks for Brigham Young to use to construct this idea. Obviously, it's polygamy involved with Joseph Smith. But there were a couple of other things that come up in section one, chapter section 130, verse 22. And that's one that is a seminary memorization scripture, scripture mastery, at least what we used to have before is doctrinal mastery. When you stop worrying about the scriptures, do we have that section 130, verse 22? Here it is. Um, hey, Maven, can you read that for us? Are, are you able to read? Yes. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Yes. I, by the way, I know you can read. I just meant, are you too busy doing other things to read this? <laughs> I assumed so. Okay. Um, okay. The father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as a man's, as man's, excuse me, the son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. Thank you very much. So what it strikes me is, is that first off, Joseph Smith is giving by this statement, God the Father, however you define him, but God the Father, a physical body of flesh and bones. In other words, he's got the equipment and he can use it. Okay, so that's the first thing. He's not just this amorphous spirit that's out there. Nor, is he, nor is he living with a TK smoothie. Correct, because he's in his own CK and there's no smoothies allowed. Anyway, the other thing about it is, is that Joseph Smith here very clearly makes three distinct beings in the Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. There's three of them, right? So there are three distinct beings. And once you have that, once you have that, now you have the question that can be raised. All right, Jesus Christ is one of these distinct beings. Jesus Christ was begotten. Obviously, he had a physical body. So which of these other two beings are is the daddy? Right. So it's like a paternity test, right? And Brigham Young goes, well, it's not the Holy Ghost, obviously. It's the father. The father is the one who supplied the, um, the mechanism. You see, and I'm doing it too. The father is the one who had sex with Mary. It wasn't the Holy Ghost who had sex with Mary. It's just this literalism as well that comes forward, which is very prominent in Mormonism, or at least in the early uh, speculative, speculative theological days of Mormonism. But of course, the practice of polygamy, the fact that God, the Father, has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, and the fact that there's three beings in the Godhead, I think are the three main building blocks that Brigham Young draws upon 
to make this theological conclusion and then spring it upon the world in 1852. I, I, can't, help, that. I can't help but recognize that, you know, polygamy is going on and women really don't have much choice. I know there's this idea that you ask the, the first wife and, but really the pressure on her to give in and allow her husband to have access to exaltation by taking on more than one. And I think even more than two wives, I think three is the minimum. Uh, in in Mormon theology, at least in places. But this idea that women don't really have much choice, if you can show that Mary has God come in and God has sex with her because it's necessary and she really doesn't have any say about this, that also gives some sort of blanket permission in polygamy as well. I think that you're right. And what's going to end up happening is that Mary... I think is going to be used as the poster child for women who are yes. proposed to and to enter into a polygamous relationship where she says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me as the Lord hath said. Yeah. That's never actually said in any of my research, but that's the impression that I get. All right. Mm -hmm. So I want to make that clear. I'm not saying that that's what any early church leader said, but I think that's an easy leap to make. And I want to identify it as speculation on my part. Yeah. Okay. So if we just want to go very quickly, just to Heber C. Kimball, because Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young were BFFs. And there was nothing, I think, that Brigham Young either said or did that Heber C. Kimball wasn't going to be right there backing him. So in Journal of Discourses, this is from September 2nd, 1860. And let me see if I can find... Where that was, that's Journal of Discourses, Volume 8, page 211. This is one of those that had a wrong citation elsewhere on the internet, but the correct citation is Volume 8, page 211. Just one paragraph, just to let you know that this is being said by others as well as Brigham Young. In relation to the way in which I look upon the works of God and his creatures, I will say that I was naturally begotten. This is another way that this is frequently put, I was naturally begotten, so was my father, and also my savior, Jesus Christ. See, he's going to go to Jesus Christ being naturally begotten. According to the scriptures, he is the first begotten of his father in the flesh, and there was nothing unnatural about it. So that's how these things come to be said. There's nothing unnatural about it. It's literal. This is all, not even that, I was going to say it's code talk, but it's not really very well encoded. It's pretty obvious what's being said. Literal means literal. Bruce and McConkie will riff on that later when we get to him. And just but to here's note, one, yeah. just, I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but I'm trying to throw little things out. So just Please. to note that we live at a time where people are much more conservative in how they express things of sexual nature. And you can see that in Mormonism, for instance, in the Temple Lot case, when the women are testifying, they're they're absolutely saying that they were with Joseph Smith and had relations, but they choose their words in ways that our modern um, approach would go like, are they really saying that? Is that what's going on? It it really is a different language and it's much more conservative, not expressing sexuality explicitly. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate yes. that. And please interrupt anytime because I don't want to be monologuing here. There's a whole lot. Now I'm going to really read something and I'll try and read it, maybe not in a different <laughs> voice, but this is going to be Orson Pratt because one of the interesting things I discovered as I was doing this research 
is that we all know that Orson Pratt famously and publicly disagreed with Brigham Young over the Adam God doctrine. But when it comes to Brigham Young's teaching about God having sex with Mary, Orson Pratt was totally on board with that. Orson Pratt during this time period is over in Washington, D.C. He's writing a newspaper called The Seer, which he is publishing. He's I mean, he's writing everything for it, uh, producing it, uh, distributing it, I imagine, or making sure that that happens. This is for a public audience. All right. This is in Washington, D.C. This is to present the doctrines of Mormonism to a public or Gentile audience, obviously with the hopes of getting people interested in the church. And he writes about this extensively and in the most laudatory terms. So this is volume one, number 10 of The Seer. That's the name of the publication. This is 1853. I think it's October, but it could be wrong about that. I think it's 1853. Um, I know it's 1853. I think it's October. But here it is where we start on page 158. And if we can go down to the very bottom, everybody will be very happy. We're going to skip all this stuff down to the very bottom of the left column where he says, if none, yes, if none but gods will be permitted to multiply, excuse me, if none but gods will be permitted to multiply immortal children, it follows that each god must have one or more wives. See how logical Orson Pratt is? One of the things he was famous for. Now if we go to the top of the right column. So God must have one or more wives, period. God, the father of our spirits, became the father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. Hence the father saith concerning him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We are informed in the first chapter of Luke, this is going to be verse 35, by the way, Luke 135. We are informed in the first chapter of Luke that Mary was chosen by the father as a choice virgin through whom he begat Jesus. The angel said unto the virgin Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That is the critical verse in the Bible, Luke 1.35. So this is how Orson Pratt is going to interpret that in order to make it consonant with Brigham Young's doctrine of God having sex with Mary, even though it doesn't seem to say that at all. And 2,000 years of Christians have read that and apparently not gotten that interpretation out of it. <laughs> He goes on, after the power of the highest had overshadowed Mary, and she had by that means conceived. Now, let me stop here for a second. Okay, I'm going to interrupt myself. This is part of the evolution of this doctrine, which is in this verse, Luke 135, it says, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. This comes to be interpreted as meaning God, the highest, not the Holy Ghost, number three, God, the highest, overshadowing thee, overshadowing Mary, comes to be interpreted as being synonymous with having sexual relations with her. All right? And we see that in what I just read. After the power of the highest had overshadowed Mary, and she had by that means conceived, see? She related the circumstance to her cousin Elizabeth in the following words. He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. It seems from this relation 
that the Holy Ghost accompanied the highest when he overshadowed the Virgin Mary and begat Jesus. So we have to account for the mentioning of the highest overshadowing Jesus in this one verse from Luke. And also the presence of the Holy Ghost, because it says that after the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee, that's Jesus, right, shall be called the Son of God. And it begins by saying the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Okay, that's where the Holy Ghost is mentioned. Go ahead, Bill. It looks like you have a question. Yeah, when she tells Elizabeth, he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name, mm -hmm. is I don't mean to be crude, but is is he teaching that Mary was essentially bragging to Elizabeth about the love making? Like how again, I'm off in the weeds here. I don't know that he's saying that she's bragging. He is trying to relate this other scripture and tie yeah. it in with uh with his argument it just seems in the context he's speaking of that she's basically going back to elizabeth and saying you're not going to believe this but heavenly father came down off his throne and you know we we he was a little randy and we got it on and uh i don't know that, that's i mean that again i'm just pulling from what i think the the context is but yeah that seems a little hmm, okay you, you can proceed thank you I don't know what to say to that. So, but you know, obviously it's a, it's a, your interpretation. It's valid insofar as it goes. It hmm. seems from that, this relation that the Holy ghost accompanied the highest when he overshadowed the Virgin Mary and begat Jesus. And from this circumstance, some have supposed that the body of Jesus was begotten of the Holy ghost. Well, that would be like all of Christianity. What he says, some, some have supposed, right? That would be everybody other than us. Some have supposed that the body of Jesus was begotten of the Holy Ghost without the instrumentality of the immediate presence of the Father. There is no doubt that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary to sanctify her. See, this is how the presence of the Holy Ghost in Luke 135 is accounted for and interpreted now. It comes upon Mary to sanctify her and make her holy and prepare her to endure the glorious presence of the highest, that when he should overshadow her, she might conceive, being filled with the Holy Ghost. Hence the angel said, as recorded in Matthew, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. That is, the Holy Ghost gave her strength to abide the presence of the Father without being consumed. Any thoughts on that, Bill? Just that there's a lot of, um, LDS theological things that I've never really had connected to each other, but they all kind of play out here, right? So we, when Joseph Smith is receiving revelation, there are uh, places where it's spoken of that, that you know, just like um, Moses and the burning bush and um, Abraham going up on the mount, that, that anytime a prophet is going to interact with God, that if anybody were to see God, they would be destroyed. And so Mormonism teaches that uh, someone has to be sanctified or um, some sort of process has to take place so that they can stand in the presence of God. And what he's hinting to here is that same idea that there's no way Mary could be in the presence of God. So the Holy Ghost was necessary to sanctify her, to do some sort of process so that she could be in the presence of God while he had sex with her and um, wouldn't be destroyed because that, would, that wouldn't go well. And right, so... Um, and so you hear these tangents of Mormon theology, and right now in the middle of this sermon, they're bumping into each other. No right. pun intended. He's, he's drawing on 
He's drawing on different elements in order to make his case. Right. Yeah. So, by the way, when we were talking about this in preparation for tonight's show, this had reminded you of something from a TV show. Did you want to mention that now? Oh, no, no. I, I want to mention it later. I want to mention it okay. when because I think don't you hit this again when you're talking about uh, Ballard's Melvin Ballard's quote. Doesn't he hit on that as well? Oh, I'm sure. And then we'll Joseph Fielding Smith, I think, also. I just didn't want to bypass yeah, no, no. it. You're good. I'll, I'll, I've got it, and I've got it. But yes, let's let's proceed till we get to a couple more quotes. Okay, very good. So going on with Orson Pratt, he's just said that the Holy Ghost gave her strength to abide the presence of the Father without being consumed, but it was the personage of the Father who begot, begat, excuse me, but it was the personage of the Father who begat the body of Jesus. See, very clear. And for this reason, Jesus is called the only, the only begotten of the Father, emphasis in the original. That is the only one in this world whose fleshly body was begotten by the Father. There were millions of sons and daughters whom he begat before the foundation of this world, but they were spirits and not bodies of flesh and bones. Whereas both the spirit and body of Jesus were begotten by the Father. The spirit having been begotten in heaven among many ages before the tabernacle was begotten upon the earth. Okay, so we can see that Orson Pratt is all in and arguing for the idea that God the Father had sex with Mary in order to conceive the body of Jesus. The only thing that um, is different is that Orson Pratt would say that the Father is Elohim who had sex with Mary and Brigham Young would say that the father was Adam who had sex with Mary. Okay. Mm. Interestingly, the, the God makers goes with Orson Pratt on this one. Mm. Cause they specifically identify it as Elohim coming to see Mary. I don't know if that much thought went into it, but that's where they end up landing, whether intentionally or not. But now Orson Pratt, having thought about this being an intelligent, very intelligent individual, he starts thinking about this and thinking, okay, this is leading us into a difficulty. It actually leads us into a bunch of difficulties, but here's one, which is, um, isn't like sex outside of marriage supposed to be wrong? Okay. So now Orson Pratt starts theorizing and even teaching as a parent fact that God and Mary were married at the time, because otherwise it would have been unlawful for God to have sex with Mary. It is interesting. Every time you solve one theological conundrum, you find yourself into a quagmire of another one. Right. And we'll get to the problem about her being a virgin at the time as well. But that's for that's for yeah. a little bit later. But here they got to be husband and wife. OK, he goes on the fleshly body of Jesus. And that's right there. That line right there at the bottom of the screen right now, Maven, the fleshly body of Jesus required a mother as well as a father. Therefore, the father and mother of Jesus, according to the flesh, must have been associated together in the capacity of, drumroll please, husband and wife. Hence, the Virgin Mary must have been, for the time being, the lawful wife of God, the Father. Obviously. Well, yeah, it's so obvious. Hello. We use the term lawful wife because it would be blasphemous. <laughs> I'm sorry. Most people think this is blasphemous already. Yeah. Orson, Orson Pratt, it would be blasphemous to think that they actually did this without being married. 
Okay, so we use the term lawful wife because it would be <laughs> blasphemous in the highest degree to say that he overshadowed her or begat the Savior unlawfully. Once again, notice the connection. He overshadowed her or begat the Savior. It's the definition now. If, if Heavenly Father comes in and just does a magic spell and she's pregnant, or if the Holy Ghost comes in and does a magic spell, this isn't a conversation that's necessary. Orson Pratt, regardless of his language, is clearly, and there's no way out of it, saying that that a God had sex with Mary. End of discussion. Like there, there isn't any other way to interpret this. I just want to note that because apologetics is continually trying to. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, this is why we're, I'm taking the time to lay this foundation. So hopefully it will be indisputable to, to anyone, I think any reasonable person, uh, that this is what is being taught. Oh, and, and spoiler alert, it gets better. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, uh, it would have been, yeah. Okay. And this says it would have been unlawful for any man to have interfered with Mary. Interfering, I guess, meaning making the beast with two backs. As Shakespeare put it in Othello. <laughs> See, Shakespeare can be fun, just so you know. So um, it would have been unlawful for any man to have, any man, excuse me, let me put the emphasis there, right, on the right syllable. It would have been unlawful for any man to have interfered with Mary, who was already espoused to Joseph. For such a heinous crime would have been subject, would have subjected both the guilty parties to death according to the law of Moses. But God, having created all men and women, had the most perfect right to do with his own creation according to his holy will and pleasure. Are they justifying incest there? I mean, we are all sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us and we love him. Yes. Okay, just want to be... Well, it's like the Elvis sure. Presley song, Kissing Cousins, right? Man, there's a lot going on in this talk that you could almost spend three hours just dissecting all the theology and all the connections and stuff going on here. Yeah, and the Elvis Presley references, too. Yeah, yeah, well, I didn't get that, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but God, okay, had, okay. Had, according Sorry. to his holy will and pleasure, he could do what he wanted. He had a lawful right to overshadow the Virgin Mary in the capacity of a husband and beget a son, although she was espoused to another. For the law which he gave to govern men and women was not intended to govern himself or to prescribe rules for his own conduct. So this is the rules for thee and not for me idea. Mm. Now, it's interesting to me, and I'm not going to go into this in depth, but Orson Pratt is very clear that they had to be married in order for this to have not been unlawful. But his theological imagination seems to have failed him when it came to the question of who it was who would marry God. In other words, who would perform the ceremony? If God, the highest, is getting married, who's going to be doing that, that ceremony? So he almost seems to say that simply the fact that God treats Mary as his wife makes God her husband. At any rate, he doesn't clarify any further, which is what makes me think he kind of ran into a wall on this one. So he says he had a lawful right to overshadow the Virgin Mary in the capacity of a husband, and beget a son, although she was espoused to another, for the law which he gave to govern men and women was not intended to govern himself or to prescribe rules for his own conduct. It was also lawful in him, after having thus dealt with Mary, to give her to Joseph, her espoused husband. Whether God the Father gave Mary to Joseph for time only, 
or for time and eternity, we are not informed. Which I think is big of Orson Pratt to acknowledge that we're not informed of that fact, but we're really not informed of anything else that he's been talking about here that I've been I reading. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. <laughs> so we don't know. I mean, we know that they were married. That much is obvious, right? They had to be married. But we just, the th one thing we don't know, the one thing that we can't figure out yet is whether they were married, God and Mary are married for time only or for time and eternity. That's the big mystery here. So he says, we are not informed of that question. Inasmuch as God was the first husband to her, i.e. the first person to have sex with her, apparently is what he means. Inasmuch as God was the first husband to her, it may be that he only gave her to the wife, to be the wife of Joseph while in this mortal state, and that he intended after the resurrection to again take her as one of his own wives uh, to raise up immortal spirits in eternity. So there you go. Any thoughts about that? That was rather a long reading, but I thought it merited it. The I just want to note, at least on the one point, that uh, Heavenly Father, whoever he is, whether Adam or uh, Elohim, had sex with Mary, on at least that point, uh, Orson Pratt and Brigham Young agree, and that rarely happened. Well, yeah, it certainly happened here. And that's what was so interesting to me. They were both of one voice on yeah. this idea. Orson Pratt totally agreed with Brigham Young on this rather radical and unusual theological concept. And Heber C. Kimball. So you really have three members of the top 15. And I think Kimball was a counselor in the first presidency, if I'm not mistaken. Um, did you know that offhand? Oh, he, he certainly might have been. And I'm sorry, I don't know offhand. That's okay. But I just know that like you said in the beginning, they were close friends and they, yes. they really do reiterate each other often. Um, you really have a, a significant portion of, you know, I shouldn't say significant, but you have a portion of the top leadership who's saying this, teaching it. You don't have it coming from anywhere else. I just want to note, it's not like we have a single quote hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. Just want to note that. That was an interesting turn of phrase. Did you choose yeah, yeah. those words I'm sure we'll hear that again. reason? Yeah, we'll hear that again. Okay. <laughs> All right. So just parenthetically, uh, in 1866, a number of years later, Brigham Young now appears to echo the thoughts of Orson Pratt when he says, and I'm not even sure if we have that. Uh, if we don't, that's fine. But it's just one little uh, sentence, actually. Where he says, the man Joseph, the husband of Mary, did not that we know of have more than one wife. But Mary, the wife of Joseph, had another husband. Mm. Hmm. See how he likes to insinuate those ideas there. He's good yeah. at that. Now, are. let's leave Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and Heber C. Kimball. Let's move into the 20th century because, believe it or not, this doesn't die there. This continues. This teaching. And it shows up in Jesus the Christ by James Talmadge. Mm. Well, that's interesting to me because, uh, once again, I went on my mission of 79 to 81 in Japan. But back then, Jesus the Christ was part of the missionary library. Still on is, our, by the way. As far as I know, okay. it is still part of the approved missionary library, in, in, at least up until real recent. If it okay. isn't right now, I'd love to know what year because I... I think as of at least five years ago or so, it was still part of the official 
uh, missionary library somewhere. I've got the word for that written down. I'll look for it, but please continue. Okay. Well, this was ended up being published in 1915. So now we're into the 20th century. By the way, if I can get a screen on me alone. Yep. Let Sorry. me, uh, I can do that. It's really not just for me. It's for the book, but this is my copy of Jesus, the Christ. And it's not only Jesus, the Christ, if I can get hold of this and focus it, Jesus Christ, it's also articles of faith in this one little handy dandy book on onion skin paper and leather. I got this on my mission. I traded it for a paperback copy that was bigger and easier to read. And I think I got the best of that deal. So here we are. I'm reading Jesus the Christ on my mission. I'm already aware of this idea. So when I come to the Annunciation of Gabriel to Mary and what James Talmadge writes about it, I know exactly what he's saying. Because pretty darn obvious. Um, here we go. By the way, do you want to read this one, Bill? Uh, sure. His this message. Is Jesus the Christ, chapter seven. Excuse me. I already interrupted you before you started reading. No sweat. So his message delivered, Gabriel departed, leaving the chosen virgin of Nazareth to ponder over her wondrous experience. Mary's promised son was to be the only begotten of the father in the flesh. So it had been both positively and abundantly predicted. True, the event was unprecedented. True also, it has never been paralleled. But the virgin birth would be unique, was a, as truly essential to the fulfillment of prophecy as that it should occur at all. That child, to be born of Mary, was begotten of Elohim, the eternal father, not in violation of natural law, but in accordance with a higher manifestation thereof. And offspring, uh, let me find that here. And the offspring. Offspring from that association of supreme sanctity, celestial sireship, and pure, though mortal maternity, was of right to be called the son of the highest. In his nature would be combined the powers of the Godhead with the capacity and possibilities of mortality, and this through the ordinary operation of the fundamental law of heredity, declared of God, demonstrated by science, and admitted by philosophy that living beings shall propagate after their kind. The child Jesus was to inherit the physical, mental, and spiritual traits, tendencies, and powers that characterized his parents, one immortal glorified God, uh, the other human uh, woman. And I want to just pause for a second. Jackson Washburn is is listening. Watching. Hey, Jackson. Welcome to the and, show. And I don't know, Maven, if it's easy enough to go back up to his comment about how he prefers to think of all of this. But I just want to note, Jackson, when we say here on Mormonism Live and in Inside Mormon Discussion uh, Incorporated, when we say that often the apologetics require you to make more allowances and extra conjecture, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You've taken the teachings of the LDS Church, and you've just kind of figured out like where it doesn't quite work, what pieces and parts don't belong, and then you've kind of redone it yourself in a way that's contrary to what these guys are saying, but in a way that makes it softer for you. And that's the very thing I mean by using conjecture in allowances to create loopholes via mental gymnastics to make all of this work. Anyway, just a note. Hmm. Okay. Well, Jackson, anyway, welcome to the show. I appreciate your comments and uh, keep uh, making them. We can't guarantee Please. we'll give them all that kind of attention. <laughs> Otherwise, everybody else will get jealous. But uh, So this is a very, very long paragraph by Elder Talmadge. There's a reason that this book is so freaking long. And one of the reasons is because his tendency is towards prolixity. 
But in this one paragraph, it was very clear to me reading this, that what he's doing is he's repeating the same concept that was taught by Brigham Young, the same concept that was taught by Orson Pratt and Heber C. Kimball. He's just putting it a little bit more delicately, a little more flowery language, but he's still saying the exact same thing. What are your thoughts about that? Um, as I sit and look at it, you're right. Like that's the same stuff. He, every one of these quotes that you're sharing is trying to hit on this idea. They, they realize you can tell by the wording. They always realize that it's going to be not quite acceptable, not quite kosher. They also realize they're bumping up against other theological ideas. And so they tend to kind of soften it with language. But if you read between the lines, they're actually being really direct about what it is they're saying. Right. So this was a uh, 1915, excuse me, was when uh, Jesus the Christ was published. Now we're going to go to 1923, when a rather famous apostle at the time named Melvin J. Ballard. He gave a sermon in which he talks about this, the conception of Jesus. Now, if we can get the backyard professor's comment off there. Sorry, BYP. That one, too. Okay, so I'm sorry. The only reason I wanted off there was so we could see the citation. So it's 1923. It was printed in the Deseret News, December 23rd. It also shows up in a book, which is a collection of his sermons. It's a bit of a biography. It's called The Sermons and Missionary Services of Melvin J. Ballard, pages 166 to 167, for those of you who would like to try and look it up yourself. By the way, Melvin J. Ballard is indeed the grandfather of a current apostle and president of the or acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And do you know who that is, Bill? That would be uh, Russell M. Ballard. Or M. Or maybe Russell it's Ballard. M. Russell, M. Russell Ballard. It's always confusing, isn't it? Some Mormon leaders don't Russell use their first name, and some do, and it does get confusing. Nowhere else, by the way, nowhere else in the world have I ever ran into people to such a propensity that use their middle name as their first name than Mormonism. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, this is Melvin J. Ballard, and M. Russell Ballard is his grandson, and the M for M. Russell Ballard stands for Melvin. I guess we can understand why he goes by Russell. So, Sermons in Missionary Service of Melvin J. Ballard, and he wrote a number of things that were important at the time, and some of which I actually read. But I want to read to you a little bit more of a complete statement of this. And it will intersect with the slide that's on the screen. I'm going to leave it up to the reader or the watcher to see where it can coincides and doesn't, because that slide had to be compressed in order to fit the slide. Here it is. As to whether or not his, Jesus's, his was a virgin birth, a birth wherein divine power interceded. And if God, the eternal father, is not the real father of Jesus Christ, then are we in confusion? See, it's always this attempt to come in and save the day to show that Jesus really is the son of God. I mean, what could be more basic to Christianity than that concept that Jesus is the son of God? So right. the Mormon leaders keep coming in and saying, we're saving the day. We are maintaining the truth of that statement and that identification of Jesus as the son of God in promoting this sexual aspect of the relationship between God and Mary. So if God, the eternal father is not the real father of Jesus Christ, then are we in confusion? Then is he not, in reality, the Son of God? But we declare that he is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. No man or woman can live in mortality and survive the presence of the highest, except by the sustaining power of the Holy Ghost. Shades of horse and brat, right? So it came upon her, the Holy Ghost came upon her to prepare her 
for admittance into the divine presence. Boy, this is sounding so Warren Jeffs all of a sudden to me after seeing that uh, Keep Sweet uh, documentary. So the Holy Ghost came upon her mm -hmm. to prepare her for admittance into the divine presence and the power of the highest, who is the father, was present and overshadowed her. And the holy child that was born of her was called the son of God. Men who deny this or who think that it degrades our father have no true conception of the sacredness of the most marvelous power with which God has endowed mortal men, the power of creation. So here he's trying to respond to the idea that, you know, some people who hear this story about God having sex with Mary, they think that's degrading to God. I mean, who would think that? So he's showing why that doesn't make any sense, because obviously this doesn't degrade God that he would have sex. I'm sorry. This is actually what he's saying. It doesn't degrade God to say he'd have sex with Mary because the power of creation, that's the biggest deal there is. That's the most marvelous thing there is. And so why would that be degrading for God to use the most marvelous power in the world? Even though that power may be abused and may become a mere harp of pleasure to the wicked, nevertheless, it is the most sacred and holy and divine function with which God has endowed man. Made holy, it is retained by the Father of us all. And in his exercise of that great and marvelous creative power and function, he did not debase himself, degrade himself, nor debauch his daughter by having sex with her. Thus, I added that part, just so you know, by having sex with her. Thus, Christ became the literal son of a divine father, and no one else was worthy to be his father. Period. End of quote from Melvin J. Ballard. I would just know this is, this is a link at BYU. Notice that the ellipses are created in... To, to kind of weed out some of the sexuality um, because when, when you leave that in, it doesn't really go very well with the apologetic stance that the church in the modern day and its apologists such as Fair Mormon hold. Right. It's very clear when you read the whole quote or when you listen to me read the whole quote that he's yeah. talking about sex. They're yeah. all talking about sex. They're just trying to say, I mean, how many ways can you say God had sex with Mary without saying that God had sex with Mary in those exact yeah. words? So that's what they're doing. By the way, is it just a coincidence that we're getting in the live chat all of these uh, apparently uh, bots to uh, naked, high definition, you know, watching the stream find love? It's going to be a fun few days for me. I have to weed those out after the show as well. And, and Maven's doing a great job during the show. But because that's our topic, uh, the word is in there. Did God have sex oh. with Mary? The bots are automatically finding our stream, thinking we're talking about sex. Hence, the people are much more likely to be interested in clicking sexual things. And with that, we are off in the weeds. Well, perfect. Well, unfortunately, I'm too busy to get off in the weeds. I've still got some more of the show to do. Yeah, Maybe yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Don't um, delete all of them, Maven. Okay, so here we go. Before you um, get to Joseph Fielding Smith, I wanted to share something. Yes. So you mentioned during this quote that it reminded you of the keep sweet, pray and obey it reminded you of, of Warren yeah. Jeffs. Yeah. When I was preparing for this conversation, what it reminded me of was The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. And if you can picture the man at the foot of the bed as Elohim or Michael, um, the woman on the bed in red as Mary, and then the Holy Ghost kind of holding her down, but also comforting her, right? If, if you were a woman in your room, young woman, by the way, and by the way, some 
most most biblical scholars point to Mary being in her mid-teens, right? 14, 15 years old. I think she um, was just a few months shy. A few months shy of her 15th birthday, yes. Yeah. And so imagine being a, a, a teenager that age. Imagine a physical being comes into a, the room who's not exactly human, but not exactly not, and decides uh, to tell you impromptu that he's going to have sex with you. And it made me think of The Handmaid's Tale because there's a lot of religious, high-demand, fundamentalist religion involved there, too. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click this here. Whoop, can I say I something here, Bill? Because Please. somebody has already made a comment of something that it made me think of, because I haven't watched this show at all. I've heard of it. It's pretty famous. This is not an image of this woman giving birth. No, 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 no. Um, there are only a few in this futuristic TV series. There are only a few women, percentage of women who can conceive and have children. Those women are taken by um, a deeply rigid, unhealthy group of religious people who have taken over the government. And they take these women and enslave them to the men of the community. And so the husband and the wife, because the wife can't conceive, it is this maid's job to bear children for the community and she is forced into sex. And when I see that face, that was the face of, I thought of for Mary as this whole process is going on and remind you that that's an adult woman, which I would expect in this situation, her to be traumatized the way she is. Again, imagine what a 14, 15, 16 year old girl would be experiencing. <laughs> Helen Mark Kimball, excuse me. <clears throat> um, but yeah, please continue. Oh, you're muted. Thank you. Yeah, there is something about um, the difference between talking about it in the abstract with the language that we've been quoting yes. versus actually seeing a depiction or even an approximation of what's being described that really punches me in the gut. Yeah, gross. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, the LDS Church didn't like that cartoon segment from uh, The Godmakers is because it takes what is just being talked about, not talked about that much anymore, but was talked about and just puts it right out there. This is what it is. And all it is is knocking on the door and then coming in with a meaningful look on his face. Yeah. That, that young girl had to have been scared. Excuse my language. Shitless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now having gone through 23 with Melvin J. Ballard, when I say 23, I mean, 1923, let's move up to 1950s. Let's get to Joseph Fielding Smith for crying out loud. He wrote uh, Answers to Gospel Questions. He was the scriptorian of the church, the church historian for an enormous period of time and an apostle for an enormous period of time and ultimately the president of the church for a relatively brief period of time, a couple of years, I think it was 72 and 73 when he was the president of the church. But there is a three-volume set of his teachings, which is called The Doctrines of Salvation. It was edited and compiled from Joseph Fielding Smith's writings by his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie. And very early on, in volume one, where it's talking about the Son of God, there are a number of entries relating to this idea that Joseph Fielding Smith subscribed to, and which he continued to teach, and which was perpetuated through this book, Doctrines of Salvation, as well as Bruce R. McConkie and his own books, which we'll get to here in a second. Okay, so let's see what we have here. Um, Christ not begotten of Holy Ghost. Where it has that, that is like an entry. That's sort of 
uh, a title to the paragraph that's going to be talked about. It's not part of the original quote to my understanding, but here's what Joseph Fielding Smith said and what he wrote. I believe firmly that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God in the flesh. He taught this doctrine to his disciples. He did not teach them that he was the son of the Holy Ghost, but the son of the father. You see how these themes keep perpetuating themselves? Mm. Truly, all things are done by the power of the Holy Ghost. It was through this power that Jesus was brought into this world, but not as the son of the Holy Ghost, but the son of God. Jesus is greater than the Holy Spirit, which is subject unto him. But his father is greater than he, exclamation point. He has said it. Christ was begotten of God. He was not born without the aid of man, and that man was God, exclamation point. Any comments about that so far, Bill? Now, Bill, I can't hear you. Are you muted this time? I am so sorry, but more of the same, it becomes, I mean, you're putting all these together. I don't know how apologists get out of this, and yet they claim that it's easy enough to do. It, I, I can't make sense of that. It is very clear they are saying a sexual act happened. Well, the way they get out of it is by ignoring these quotes. Yeah. These are the quotes that don't get mentioned by yeah. apologists, and we'll see that. I'm not just making that up. Right. All right, so continuing, though, with what he has to say, he talks about this concept in relation to a discussion slash argument that he had with an apostle in the reorganized church. Because apparently the reorganized church does not believe that God and Mary had sexual intercourse in order to conceive the body of Jesus. So he has a section here, which was titled false reorganite doctrine about the birth of Christ. And we'll see if we have that as well, but I'll start reading it here. Reorganites claim that Brigham Young went astray and apostatized because he declared that Jesus Christ was not begotten of the Holy Ghost. Reorganites claim that he was begotten of the Holy Ghost, and they make the statement that the scriptures so teach. But they do err, not understanding the scriptures. They tell us the Book of Mormon states that Jesus was begotten of the Holy Ghost. I challenge that statement. The Book of Mormon teaches no such thing. Neither does the Bible. This is Joseph Fielding Smith. He says the Book of Mormon teaches no such thing. Neither does the Bible. It is true. There is one passage that states so, but we must consider it in the light of other passages with which it is in conflict. And here he's obviously talking about Luke chapter one, verse 35. And what he does here, he, he goes on and on. I'm going to try and abbreviate this a little bit so we can get out of here before midnight. What he says is there is the one statement. It's Luke 1 35. It says that Jesus is begotten of the Holy Ghost. But we have to take that in context with all the other many, many, many times where Jesus is called the son of God, not the son of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, if we read Luke 1 35 in context, with these other multitudinous statements that Jesus is the son of God, then Jesus is a son of God by sheer dent of the number of times it said over this one passage in Luke. And Luke has to be understood differently in order to make it harmonize with Jesus being the son of God. And you can guess how that's done. 
Yeah, the whole yeah, all of this, man. I um, feel real at a loss for words. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I was telling you this on the phone earlier today because we're going to get into the apologetics at the end, and you know we're not even done yet. There's more quotes to go. I, I am deeply bothered by the level of dishonesty and deception that church leaders and apologists use when sweeping multiple talks under the rug, picking out two select quotes, giving them just a wave of the hand, dismissing them, sweeping it under the rug, and acting as if there isn't a real issue here. And and what I would expect of a true and living church and what I would expect of its defenders who believe in honesty is for those folks to sit down and go, let's be honest. Like there's a dozen quotes. They really do indicate that this happened We don't have a good way to deal with it other than modern leaders have changed their mind on this and now teach something different. And then I would feel like we're being honestly dealt with. And unfortunately, at every turn, it is nothing but obfuscation and uh, deflection and uh, avoidance. You're you're muted. Sorry. No. Okay, there we go. So also, I'd like everybody to remember what Joseph Finley Smith says about these uh, contradictory statements that have to be read in context with all the other statements about Jesus being the son of God, because this is going to show up again later on when we get to the fair Mormon response to this subject. All right. I won't say how right now, but just keep that in mind. If you just bookmark that in your brains, we'll get to that later. All right. So then he goes on. I'm going to try and read this really quickly where he says, Christ, not son of the Holy Ghost. He talked about this a lot. And these are all assembled here in the first few pages of the um, doctrines of salvation. And by the way, it's volume one, pages 12 through 14 that these quotes are from in doctrines of salvation. So he goes on. If the reorganites are correct, then Jesus is not the only begotten son of the father, but the son of the Holy Ghost. This will not do for it conflicts with the scriptures. See? Okay. Bookmark that. The prophet taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were three separate personages and that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. In the book of Genesis, inspired version, Jesus is spoken of throughout as the only begotten of the Father not less than 12 times, and in the book of Mormon at least five times, and a great number of times in the Doctrine and Covenants. And in these scriptures, he is spoken of as the Son of God innumerable times. Now, If he is the only begotten of the Father in flesh, he must be the Son of the Father and not the Son of the Holy Ghost. Yet to be consistent, reorganites must claim that Jesus is the Son of the Holy Ghost and not the Son of God the Father. Their alternative, if it can be called such, must be then the stand of Mr. William H. Kelly, president of their apostles, who gave a written statement in answer to the question put to him by the writer September 10th, 1903. In other words, Joseph Fielding Smith wrote a letter to William H. Kelly, who was the president of the Reorganized Apostles, September 10th, 1903, and asked this question. You say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was begotten of the Holy Ghost. Is he the Son of the Holy Ghost? Mr. Kelly signed his answer as follows. I do not know William H. Kelly. So he's going to hold this against them that they don't know the answer to this question, which the Mormons know, or at least we used to know, not that long ago, <laughs> when Joseph Billing Smith is talking about this, don't but you feel like Will, don't you feel like William H. Kelly's response is really just a 
like a go overshadow yourself kind of comment. <laughs> like here's a prophet of your competitor yes. writing you and asking you a question because he's trying to get you caught in a corner. Yeah. And you're just basically you're like, yeah, go overshadow yourself. Here's the funny thing for me when I read this was that in the 1950s or actually that's way back in 1903. Yeah. Um, this church used to know stuff. This church used to proclaim stuff. Now, it may have been somewhat wacky, radical, unorthodox, offensive to many non-Mormons. But we used to know things and proclaim to know things. With and here he's showing... Oh, no, go finish your statement, please. Yeah. And here he's showing Mr. Kelly is the bozo because his answer is, I do not know. And yet, fast forward now to 2022, which is the year of this broadcast, the date being July 13th, 2022, today's date. And that is more and more what we hear from the leaders and apostles of the LDS church, which is they don't know. Yeah. Having prophets, seers, and revelators means that we know less and less every day. Right. So my how things have changed. A final thing from Joseph Hilling Smith here. Just think of this for a moment. Here is a man professing to be the chief of the special witnesses for Christ declaring that he does not know whether Jesus is the Son of God the Father or the Son of the Holy Ghost. And the Savior declared it so plainly that he was the Son of the Father, his only begotten, and was so acknowledged by the Father throughout the Scriptures. And now he's going to tie this into, I think it's John 17, 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So he's actually, he being Joseph Billing Smith, is actually going to suggest that this is a doctrine that is essential to know in order to have eternal life, which ironically is the way Brigham Young used it in order to talk about knowing that Jesus's father is Adam. So I'm done with that. Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Any comments before I go on to Bruce R. McConkie, my favorite apostle and yours? And I assume you're saving the one for last. Uh, which one am I saving for last? Uh, the, the 1914 reference. Do I have a 1914 reference that I skipped? Um, do you, can you see down at the below my screen next to my, next to my person? There's a, there's an image there. Next to no. your person. Uh, very at the very bottom below, below the screen of the, the viewers see. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm saving that for 1972. I thought it's okay. Just want to be okay. Sure. Please. Thank continue. you very much. Yes. Um, Okay, so now we've gone through Joseph Fielding Smith. Now we're going to Bruce R. McConkie, the son-in-law of Joseph Fielding Smith, and a person who we can expect, and indeed we are not disappointed in our expectation that he's going to reiterate everything that his father-in-law said. He said this on a number of occasions, Bruce R. McConkie did. He was uh, prolific in the number of books that he wrote, even though it's kind of my opinion, having read most of them, that basically what he did was he would write the same book multiple times and then just give them different titles and covers. Things would be rearranged a little bit within them, but they were all pretty much the same as far as I can recall. But here's what he says. This is under the title, this is uh, his book, Mormon Doctrine, first edition, 1958. Although there's nothing special about the, it being the first edition because this kept going and probably continues in the latest edition, even though it's been discontinued in the last few years. But under Only Begotten Son, let me see if we have this up here. We do. Um, hey, Maven, are you able to come on and read this without all the, um, the scriptural citations? 
right? Starting in the middle, basically. Yeah, basically. Um, well, it is talking about the titles, beloved son, Christ, son, son of God, and Christ is the only begotten um, and only begotten of the father. These name titles all signify that our Lord is the only son of the father in the flesh. Each of the words is to be understood literally. Only means only. Begotten means begotten and son means son. Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. By the, oh, you're muted again. But by the way, I just want to note here, if I look up a dictionary definition of begotten, typically of a man, sometimes of a man and a woman, bring a child into existence by the process of reproduction. So again, as he's pointing out, to take it literally, it's not like begotten is this strange biblical term that we can have lots of definitions for. It means something, and it's used to mean something. Um, and we ought, if he says literally, we ought to hold it to that. Right, absolutely. And that's what he's saying. That's what literally means. Literally means literally. It doesn't literally. mean figuratively. It doesn't mean mm -mm. spiritually. It means literally. It's and why Jackson what... Washburn's perspective doesn't work. It doesn't fit what prophets, seers, and revelators have taught. He's created it because he's smart enough to know things don't work. And he went to the drawing board and he said, let me figure out a new way to put this together so that I can be comfortable. It's not what Joseph Fielding Smith taught. It's not what Bruce R. McConkie taught, Heber C. Kimball, uh, Brigham Young, Orson Pratt, and Melvin Ballard, and anybody else we're going to talk about tonight. Right. Uh, just in Jackson's defense, though, I think that he's probably come to the point where he feels well-informed enough on the subject to look at alternative methods of trying to reconcile this that makes sense to him. And so I sure. don't want to try and deprive him of that ability. Oh, no, no. That's what apologetics is. Or trying to become more nuanced and, you know, try and recognize that there may be, I mean, people today are now going to look at uh, the, um, the virgin birth in terms of potentially artificial insemination or test tube babies. Cause that's where our, technology has led us to. Yeah. So we'll be going to the point of saying, well, if we can do in vitro fertilization today, then who says that God couldn't do it 2000 years ago? Because of course, anything we can do today, God could have done 2000 years ago. And therefore we can start speculating in that way. But what is clear is yeah. that regardless of the speculations we can have based on technology and regardless of what an individual may do in order to make this uh, make sense to them, I think what is very clear is that the leaders of the church that we're quoting are all on the same page here. And yeah. that is that there was sexual relations between God, however you define God, whether Adam or Elohim, and Mary in order to conceive and produce the physical body of Jesus. Do you think that's fair? Yes, that many, many leaders have painted us into a box because it, we all understand that semen in uh, a fertile woman will impregnate her they could have easily left room for processes that did that without the actual act of sex, but they are adamant that sex is part of this. Yes. I think that yeah. much is clear. And yeah. then we go on to under the, by the way, that was uh, page 494 of the 1958 edition of Mormon doctrine under the entry only begotten son on page 670. We have another, reference under the article son of god and i don't know if we have that i'm going to start reading that right now and see if we have it but here's what it says god the father is a perfected glorified holy man with a capital m 
an immortal personage. And Christ was born into the world as the literal son, literal son of this holy being. He was born in the same personal, real, and literal sense that any mortal son is born to a mortal father. There is nothing figurative about his paternity. He was begotten, conceived, and born in the normal and natural course of events, for he is the son of God, and that designation means what it says. Period. End of quote. Any questions, class? Nope. So one of the interesting things, though, that I think that Bruce McConkie did was he tried to come up with a way to get out of the problem of why it is that Mary's considered to be a virgin even after she's had sex with God the Father. Because she's a, a virgin conceives and a virgin gives birth and she's the virgin Mary and that's the miracle. But if we're still saying that she had sex with God, doesn't that mean that she's no longer a virgin? Well, in this instance, what Bruce R. McConkie does, and he does it in a couple of places, is he apparently attempts to redefine the word virgin as a woman who has not had sex with a mortal man. But if a woman who is a virgin has had sex with an immortal being, i.e. God, then she continues to remain a virgin. Now, he doesn't get into arguing that very much. He just sort of mentions it tangentially a couple of times. Obviously, he doesn't want to go too much into it, but this is his solution to this theological problem. And the first place is in the promised Messiah. You remember he wrote the Messiah series. I think it had five volumes to it. This is the promised Messiah. That'd be volume one, page 466. And what he says there is this. For our present purposes... Suffice it to say that our Lord was born of a virgin, which is fitting and proper and also natural since the father of the child was an immortal being. And we can take this quote off the page if that's okay, Maven. I'm into this part here now. This is in the promised Messiah. I don't know if we have a picture of that, but it's page 466. It's one sentence. I'm going to read it again so you can understand what he's saying. For our present purposes, suffice it to say that our Lord was born of a virgin, which is fitting and proper and also natural, since or because the father of the child was an immortal being. I'm going to take out that intermediate clause, which doesn't add anything. What he's saying is, suffice it to say that our Lord was born of a virgin, since the father of the child was an immortal being. Do you see what he's doing there, Bill? Yeah, yeah. He's saying that. She's a virgin because if you have sex with an immortal being, you're still a virgin. It's only when you have sex with a mortal being that you're no longer a virgin. Zeus and the Greek gods are going to be grateful for this. Yes, it's a novel argument, to be sure. And one that he repeats in Mormon doctrine under the entry virgin birth. This is going to be, actually, I don't even know that I have the page number but it's alphabetical, so it's pretty easy to find. It'd be under V for virgin. Virgin birth. Our Lord is the only mortal person. I'm wondering. Let's see. Our Lord is the only mortal person ever born to a virgin because he is the only person who ever had an immortal father. 
So there it is again. Lovely and then he goes on. Um, Mary, his mother, was carried away in the spirit, was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, and the conception which took place by the power of the Holy Ghost resulted in the bringing forth of the literal and personal Son of God the Father. Christ is not the Son of the Holy Ghost, but of the Father. Modern, modernistic teachings denying the virgin birth are utterly and completely apostate and false, as opposed to this doctrine that I've just been teaching you. So this is something that's important. Um, the scriptural phrase in Luke 135 that says, Mary will be overshadowed to the highest. That becomes interpreted by LDS commentators to mean God had sex with her, overshadowed her. And later on, it appears to be Bruce R. McConkie. I didn't find anybody before him, but it appears to be Bruce R. McConkie who came up with the idea of redefining virgin to iron out that wrinkle in this oh, proposition. Yeah. Allowances and conjecture. Now, remember, some of that applies elsewhere too. Brian Hales has also felt liberty to redefine virgin. And so now virgin can mean lots of things. Mm, yes. Yes. So when you control the definition of a term, it's easy to win the argument. Especially when there's never been a definition given for that term before that moment where it was used any other way or used in the way you're trying to impose it be. Right. Right. Yeah. Now you had found an Elder G. Smith quote from the 1950s, I think. He was the church patriarch. Yeah, let me, uh, I can put it up here on the screen here. Let me, uh, give me just a second. Okay. Uh, take me. Sorry if I surprised you. you no, I actually was ready for points. it, but I switched, I switched it to a different monitor and that monitor's smaller. And so it didn't show up as well. So let me, uh, F11. Oops. Well, this is 1964. This is March 10th, 1964. I was four years old the day he gave this talk. Yeah. So if our father in heaven is an exalted being, I just want to knock one little principle that is taught around the world that I cannot believe. Then he has the capacity and the ability of accomplishing and doing anything that any mortal can do. I cannot believe this doctrine that is taught universally of an immaculate conception of Christ. By the way, do you want to correct that now or at the end? I'll just go ahead and correct it now. It's a common misconception. Please, Please do. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. It has to do with a miracle that Catholics believe occurred when Mary was conceived. So as not to transmit original sin onto Jesus through Mary. But go ahead. Right. Mary came into the world clean and perfect. Yeah. And, and therefore, no sin is passed on to Jesus simply by heredity. Yes. So he's misusing it. He's talking about it with the conception of Jesus. But with that caveat, please continue. Yes. Uh, I cannot believe this doctrine that is taught universally of an immaculate conception of Christ, that Christ was born from an immaculate conception. There is no such thing possible. Jesus Christ was the literal Son of God, the Father, by his spirit and also by his physical body. The difference between Christ, Christ and us, let me get rid of that little thing there, Christ and us is that he had the same father for his spirit body that he had for his physical body, but he had a mortal mother on earth. The scriptures say that she was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. Of course, there had to be some means of making this possible while she was still in mortality. Further details are not necessary, but, and by the way, when he says further details are not necessary, he's saying, I don't want to tell you directly that they had sex, right? Yeah, you should but go ask Christ your parents or something. yeah. Further details are not necessary. Right. Go, yeah. Go ask your parents. But Christ himself declared all his life that he was the son of God and he meant it. Damn it. Elder G. Smith, Patriarch to the Church, March 10th, 1964, BYU Speeches, page eight. 
Speeches of the year. That was a heck of a speech. And I'm glad that you read that. And I'm glad you found that too, because you found that. And then you found this other dissenting voice, but this dissenting voice from Harold B. Lee, I believe it is, really is interesting because it, he, even though he's dissenting from it, um, this idea, he's dissenting from the public teaching of it anyway. He's not renouncing it or rejecting it or disavowing it or anything like that. But he actually comes out and says what this teaching entails. Yeah. What everybody else has been avoiding. Yep. And I'm going to try to find it here really quick. Um, be in that one. This is good. This is going to be great. Because I was talking with Bill this morning, and I think he'd already found this quote from Eldridge G. Smith, which he just read from 1964, and also this quote from. Harold B. Lee. And this one I thought was really exciting. And also the one after that. This is really, really great because we've got a visual here that you're going to love from the 1972 Family Home Evening Manual produced by the church and sanctioned by the leadership in order to be published and distributed to its members and then taught to the families and the parents to the kids. So that's going to be really interesting. Have I tap danced long enough, Bill? Yeah, I got it up. I just got to switch screens here. And then I just yes. need to make sure I might not have the full quote, but I've got it in front of me so we can read it from there. But let me, uh, let me get rid of this. And I'm going to read from mine. So if there's something missing, we can we can talk about that. Teachers should not speculate on the manner of Christ's birth. We are very much concerned that some of our church teachers seem to be obsessed with the idea of teaching doctrine which cannot be substantiated and making comments beyond what the Lord has actually said. You asked, now remember, a prophet is a prophet when acting as such. Um, you, and that's me adding that in, by the way, because we've read so many statements prior to this moment that these men, including uh, Brigham Young, O ye inhabitants of the earth, right, that these men are teaching. Joseph Fielding Smith, writing the leader of the Reorganites and and pointing out theology. And then uh, was it Orson Pratt or Heber C. Kimball called it doctrine, uh, for instance. So I just want to note the way that later leaders seem to reduce past leaders by pretending there isn't a bunch of comments on the record. There's only one. It's in some side talk. Um, you know, it's in an obscure uh, paragraph of a single talk somewhere, right? Very good point. Okay, so let's continue here. So... Um, Teachers seem to be upset, by the way, blaming teachers again, too. Church, teachers seem to be obsessed with the idea of teaching doctrine, which cannot be substantiated and making comments beyond what the Lord has actually said. You asked about the birth of the Savior. Never have I talked about sexual intercourse between deity and the mother of the Savior. If teachers were wise in speaking of this matter, about which the Lord has said very little, they would rest their discussion on this subject with merely the words which are recorded on this subject in Luke 134-35. Unfortunately, past leaders didn't do that. Then said, I added that by the way, then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Remember that the being who was brought about by Mary's conception was a divine personage. We need not question his method to accomplish his purposes. 
Perhaps we would do well to remember the words of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let the Lord rest his case with this declaration and wait until he sees fit to tell us more. Teachings of Harold B. Lee, uh, edited by Clyde J. Williams, Salt Lake City Bookcraft, 1996, pages 13 through 14. So that's very interesting to me. In addition to the points that you made, first off, thank goodness for Elder Harold B. Lee, even President Harold B. Lee for about a year back in the early 70s, for actually saying sexual intercourse between deity and the mother of the Savior. I do notice that he doesn't deny it. He doesn't say it's not true. He says it shouldn't be taught. People seem to be obsessed with this and we should just go with the scriptures and ignore what Orson Pratt said about it, what Brigham Young said about it, what Melvin J. Ballard said about it, what Joseph Ely Smith said about it, and what Bruce R. McConkie said about it. Just ignore all that stuff and just go with what the Lord has said, <laughs> which is why it's such a great point that you make about a prophet. I mean, what are these gentlemen for if they're not telling us what the Lord would have us know? I thought that's yeah. what the missionaries taught me back in 1978 before I got baptized. And I'm guessing it is the God makers that is the thing that happens in between the approach by the church to act like this was never taught and to ask people not to teach it and all the quotes prior where it has been taught and um, seems to be strongly indicating that multiple leaders taught that God and Mary had sex. Right. Except for Harold B. Lee, who, of course, passed away in 72. When did the God makers come out? 84. Or okay. So, so he was before... Do you, do you have any idea what would have prompted him then to I, I think that suddenly he have the shift that. away? I think that when he became the president of the church, his wife said that he, Harold B. Lee was unleashed. Ooh, gotcha. Let's make that's some little, shifts. Let's make some that's changes. That's Wendy Nelson humor. Gotcha. So gotcha. anyway, but uh, apparently uh, not everybody agreed that this should be taught. And Harold B. Lee was one who did not think it should be taught. And so he's coming down on, hey, let's just not talk about this for crying out loud because it's making me uncomfortable and it's making the church not look so good. And I don't like the idea. So whatever reason he didn't want to talk about, by the way, this is the exact same trajectory that happened with the Adam God theory, which is that Brigham Young taught it. Then Brigham Young passes away. And early in the 20th century, the leaders of the church start saying, okay, look, uh, elders quit talking about this Adam God stuff. We don't need to talk about this. It really hasn't been revealed. Let's just say, you know, God is God. Jesus is Jesus. The Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost. Beyond that, we don't need to say anything else. And let's just let sleeping dogs lie. And that seems to be what it is that Harold B. Lee is saying about the idea that God had sex with Mary. So he has a dissenting opinion. But even though he dissents, what he does is he underscores what it is that everybody's saying and what it is that we know they're saying is that what they're teaching is that God had sexual intercourse with Mary. He uses the actual phrase. And now you've got a brochure up there from the church. Yeah, this was like this was yeah, this was a missionary track back in the day. What the Mormons think of Christ. Yeah. Uh, people probably older will remember that one. But if I go to page 27, and I don't know, I, I was trying to find it there for a moment, but it's somewhere here. Let me go another page. Yeah. It's somewhere here more. on the right hand side, but it says somewhere there, he is the son of God, literally. It's right there. Actually as men are the sons of mortal parents. What Mormons think of Christ, a pamphlet published by the LDS Church, page 27, 
1982. Yeah, there's four paragraphs down on the right side. One, two, three, four. He is the son of God, literally, actually, as men are the sons of mortal parents. Yeah. So there's at least a subtle reference, even in a missionary tract. And But, you know, we're to this point here. I, I think I'm assuming I know what's coming next. We're to this point here where, you know, some of this stuff's in uh, a talk here, a talk there. But again, the church is always having this debate about what's what's official church doctrine and what isn't. And the official church doctrine is found in the curriculum of the church, in the uh, standard works, in the um, uh, what else? Other th- uh, when again, we have got those statements by Christofferson and Anderson. Um, but essentially, it's these things that have been correlated that we can be sure are safe. We don't, we've already got, you know, good reasoning worked out for these things. It's not, it's not some things set off to the side. Did you want to play that new definition by Elder Anderson and Elder Christofferson as to what constitutes doctrine at this point, Bill? Yeah. And I just want to note, I mean, we went through what Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, um, Melvin Ballard, uh, Joseph, uh, no, no, Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, Bruce R. McConkie. Um, Harold B. Lee turned putting it down, but kind of telling us what was taught in the past, although he doesn't admit that right. leaders did it. And we'll get to Ezra Taft Benson here in a second, too. Yeah. So you've got uh, Orson Pratt agreeing with Brigham. The early brethren taught it. Uh, we talked about Kimball, Ballard. It has been taught over and over by Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie. You read a talk by a quote by Ezra Taft Benson. I will. Uh, it was spoken of as a way to know uh, that LDS. Uh, Mormonism was true and the reorganites weren't. It was taught in Jesus the Christ as part of the approved missionary library and is spoken of in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism as well, by the way, which is quasi-official. I'll get to that. Um, So it is not just a single quote hidden in an obscure paragraph of of one talk. And with that, uh, here's this guy. How few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. If if it's not difficult to find, it's only because they've tried to keep all these source materials away from the average member of the church. Um, right. That's the, the reason that, they're hard to find. The thing that I love about this quote is that this teaching is one, not every and not the only, but one classic example of why it is that Elder Anderson, who was just played there, and Elder Christofferson have tried desperately to redefine doctrine so as to exclude these types of teachings that were even called doctrine, I think it was by Brigham Young who said it was doctrine, that these now get off the table and you can't hold these against us because now by our definition of doctrine, these don't qualify because it has to be all 15 of us who are teaching it and the 15 of us have to be the 15 of us who are living right now. So that makes it very, very difficult to find anything that qualifies. And I maintain that this definition was done specifically to move teachings like this that are well-documented, repeated over the course of over 100 years by this point, from 1852, we're going to go up to 1990 here in a second, that something like this 
just doesn't qualify. And this is the important principle that Elder Anderson tells us governs uh, our understanding about what doctrine is. Doctrine is what I'm telling you now. It sure as hell isn't what Brigham Young was saying. And it's not what Orson Pratt was saying or what Joseph Fielding Smith was saying or what Bruce R. McConkie was saying or Ezra Taft Benson was saying. Heber C. Kimball. Yeah, no, uh, Melvin J. Ballard. Orson Pratt. None of these people. Nope. Nope. Just what I'm telling you right now. Thank you. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus the Christ, a thing that we all were told to read and have on hand. Um, yeah, you just create a new definition and you just sweep it under the rug and you move on. Yes. So now let's get to my last quote on this. And this is going to go up to 1990. All right. 1990 in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, which was, I, I think it's fair to say it was an official church publication. I mean, it was edited by and approved by top leadership in the church before it went out, because this is supposed to be produced by the church to tell the church members, as well as the world, anybody who wants to consult it, what the accurate teachings are of the LDS church. And in this, there are a couple of quotes. One's on page 725, and another is on page 729, but it's on the one on 725 where they quote Ezra Taft Benson, who in 1990 was the president of the church. So they're quoting him in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism as the president of the church on this subject. And let's see if we can find that there. Yeah, let me, uh, let me turn to this. If we can... Oh, let's just start it there at the very top. Is it possible to uh, zoom in on that a little bit? So we have just this top part. I know you can't see where I'm pointing to on my screen. That's good. Very good. So it's coming into this uh, in the middle of a, a sentence where he's talking about teacher more than the embodiment of compassion. He's talking about Jesus. He was able to accomplish his unique ministry, a ministry of reconciliation and salvation because of who and what he was. Here's the quote from President Benson. President Ezra Taft Benson stated, quote, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the most literal sense. The body in which he performed his mission in the flesh was fathered by that same holy being we worship as God, our eternal Father. Jesus was not the son of Joseph, nor was he begotten by the Holy Ghost. He is the son of the eternal father, exclamation point. And the site is then to Ezra Tap Benson, page four. It's probably teachings of Ezra Tap Benson. But there is this much, right? So I do want to read on a little bit beyond that. Okay. But this is the quote from Ezra Tap Benson. So now we've got President Ezra Tap Benson being quoted on the subject. And because we've gone through and taken the time to establish from Brigham Young and the, uh, the historical trajectory of this doctrine being taught by church leaders, we can see the same exact themes coming forward in this statement by Ezra Taft Benson. He wasn't begotten by the Holy Ghost. He's the son of the eternal father. We've seen that from since the time of Orson Pratt. But it goes on in the article, from Mary, a mortal woman, Jesus inherited mortality, including the capacity to die. This is gonna be very important here. From his exalted father, he inherited immortality, the capacity to live forever. The Savior's dual nature, man and God, enabled him to make an infinite atonement, an accomplishment that no other person, no matter how capable or gifted, could do. Okay, this is something that's very important. We'll find different permutations of this in sources all over the place, which we're not going to go into tonight. But you can find them and you'll see them. 
with some regularity whenever the subject of Jesus's uh, conception or virgin birth is brought up. But what is happening here now is that in Mormon theology, the very atonement of Jesus Christ, his being able to be the savior and redeemer of mankind is capable, is able to happen only because God is Jesus's literal father. So this idea of God having sex with Mary now becomes the means whereby Jesus has the power of eternal life, where he has the power of God so that he can accomplish the atonement and the resurrection and thereby become the savior of all mankind. So this is how tied in this is now becoming. And this is in 1990. Over the course of time, if God does not have sex with Mary, Jesus cannot be the savior is the abbreviated form of that calculus. Your thoughts, Bill? No, just interesting. Again, it's just another another talk that adds just a little more of a piece to this um, and another person who's who's speaking of this uh, idea and principle, this theology. And if we go, thank you, if we can go to uh, page 729, this is Jesus Christ, birth of Jesus Christ. One more paragraph from this, okay? And this is down here on 729. Next page, here we are. There we are. And the time, if we can go down to the second full paragraph from the bottom on the right. For Latter-day Saints. There we are. Thank you. For Latter-day Saints, the paternity, the paternity, i.e. who's his daddy, the paternity of Jesus is not obscure. That sounds like what it was that Elder Anderson was saying, wasn't it? It's not yeah. a, in some obscure quote. Yeah, yeah, this is from the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. For Latter-day Saints, the paternity of Jesus is not obscure. He was the literal, biological son of an immortal, tangible father. And Mary, a mortal woman. Jesus is the only person born who deserves the title, the only begotten son of God. He was not the son of the Holy Ghost. It was only through the Holy Ghost that the power of the highest overshadowed Mary. And once again, we see these fam now familiar tropes being used in this article in 1990. All right. Any comments about that, Bill, before we go to the fair Mormon response? No, no. This is the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, correct? Yes. This is the yeah. Encyclopedia of Mormonism. But they're quoting Ezra Tapp Benson. Yes. On the first. Yeah. So. I just want to note that the source isn't necessarily official, but the quote that he's using is an official quote of the church. Like it's, a, I shouldn't say that it's an official quote of Ezra Tapp Benson. Anyway, it is, it is from him directly. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So now having established what I think we've done a pretty good job of establishing, which is that from 1852 on at least through 1990, that this has been a continuous teaching of church leaders, one with which, there's one instance that we have of Harold B. Lee uh, saying that it shouldn't be taught, that he is not really, I think he's not comfortable with that being taught, that it doesn't need to be taught, that God had sexual intercourse with Mary, and that he's against it being taught without repudiating the ideas true, okay? Um, that it has been a very continuous type of discourse in the church about this issue. And so in 2002, I believe it was, Fair Mormon 
is now going to respond to this anti-Mormon criticism that Mormons teach that God had sex with Mary. You know, when we look at it now uh, and we look at their response, it's a one-page response. We're going to go through it very quickly because it actually becomes incredibly entertaining to read how it is they try and respond to this without really doing a very good job and without quoting the most salient uh, quotations that we've come up with just in tonight's show. So there is a one-page handout. It says, does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teach that God had sex with Mary and sex is all capitalized? So here's what they do. Um, can you read the very first page? By the way, hey, Maven, are you still there? I, You're not busy deleting the porn bots? <laughs> I'm here. That's got to be like a full-time job for you tonight. It kind of has been. Um, I was late on one, but I think Logan got him instead. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay on top of it. <laughs> it's like a video arcade game back from when I was a kid. Just about. Can you read this first paragraph? Um, yes. It's a good bet that the headline got your attention, isn't it? That is exactly what it was meant to do. That is why critics of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints often use this or similar statements. They have great shock value, get your attention, and pique your curiosity. It is true that sex sells. However, as is often the case, after the critics ask a good question, they run away with their ears covered when there is an attempt to give a response. This response is for the honest truth seekers, members who would sincerely like to have this question answered, and even the critics. Thank Are you. you. So we're going to see how honest their response is uh, since they've taken up this huge paragraph on a one-page form that they're going to use. They've sort of wasted all this space just talking about um, how it is that they're going to be honest with their readers and why it is that uh, anti-Mormons use this question just to arouse curiosity as well as other things. P.S. Mormonism Live isn't running away, are we? No, baby. No. You tell him I'm coming and it's hell's not. coming with me. Yeah. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Rocky reference. Very good. Thank you. Cut me, Mick. Okay. So going on with this. Hey, Bill, can you take the next paragraph? I wish we could invite our audience to read alternating paragraphs, but I don't think we have the technology for that just yet. Yeah. Maven, is that the, I, I just want to make sure I'm in the right spot because I see it scrolled down a little bit. Is that, that is the, that is the next paragraph. The place members should that. Okay. So, um, so do the LDS teach as doctrine that God had a sexual relationship with Mary? The short answer is no, but that answer is probably unsatisfactory to those who want a more complex, I'm sorry, more complete answer. Or even an honest answer. Yeah. So can we keep going? Next, uh, next, next one too. That was kind of short. The place members should always look for official doctrine is in the canonized scriptures of the church. Is that the only place? What the heck? When did that that's happen? Not, that's not the only place, is it? Um, I don't think so. Okay, just so we're clear. Okay. The clearest statement of doctrine about this topic is found in the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. First Nephi 11, 18 through 21 states... Can I read this? I'm going to read it really quickly, but notice that this is one passage in the Book of Mormon that talks about... The birth of Jesus, okay? The one in Luke, chapter 1, verse 35, is much more explicit than this one. But 
for some reason, the they good people at Fair Mormon don't want to quote one from Luke 135. They're no. going to go to First Nephi 11, 18 through 21, which states, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. And it came to pass that I beheld that she was carried away in the spirit. And after she had been carried away in the spirit for the space of a time, the angel spake unto me, saying, Look. And I looked and beheld the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. And the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. See, this actually says nothing really about uh, indicating any kind of sexual intercourse or any kind of uh, the mechanism of conception. And yet this is the one they're going to go to. And if I can just read the next paragraph, then we'll go back to Maven, if that's okay. As can be seen, official LDS doctrine clearly teaches that Mary was a virgin and that as a virgin, she gave birth to Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is the literal son of God. Notice how they want to skip over that literal thing. Okay. Cause that literal is really important. If this is so, where do critics get the idea that LDS believed God had a physical relationship with Mary? Well, they get the idea from all the quotations that we're not going to share with you. It certainly isn't in any doctrinal statements found in scripture. Okay. Uh, yes, Nathan, are you there for the next the part? Place. No, 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 absolutely not. We're being completely honest and forthright with you, and we're teaching you the truth here. Yes, I'm here. <clears throat> Starting with typically. Yes, please. Typically, critics either take statements from non-authoritative books or take an innocent phrase and make it sound like it says something it doesn't. An example is a statement from the 1972 Family Home Eating <laughs> Oh, crap. We forgot the 1972 home evening manual. This will be manual. perfect, though. This will be perfect. Oh, okay. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. I'm sorry. We skipped it, but we'll, we'll do it here. Go ahead, Maven. I recently appeared in an anti-Mormon brochure passed out at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. Do you want me to read that next little bit? Yes, would you please? How are children begotten? I answer, I answer just as Jesus Christ was begotten of his father. Dot, dot, Ellipses. Dot. We must come down to the simple fact that God Almighty was the father of his son, Jesus Christ. Mary, the virgin girl, had never known mortal man, um, was his mother. God, by her, begot his son, Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a typo there. Believe it or not, it actually says, Mary, the virgin girl, who had never. Where is it? Did it just jump up there? Yeah. Yes. Mary, uh, the virgin girl, who had never known mortal man, was his mother. God, by her, begot his son, Jesus Christ. And can you read this next paragraph, which takes us out of the quote from the 1972 home evening manual and is now their commentary about it at, at fair. While this sounds like damning evidence, a quote unquote smoking gun, upon reflection, it doesn't say anything other than Jesus is really the only begotten son of God and his sonship isn't figurative. What the statement doesn't do is specify the mechanics of his conception. This Thank you so much. This is a great setup. By the way, when yeah. they say this sounds like damning evidence, a smoking gun, imagine that the people at FAIR actually have to say, this sounds like a smoking gun, but it really isn't. Okay, just that quote alone sounds like a smoking gun. Wait until you see the page that it comes from in the manual. By the way, whenever I, I see something about a smoking gun in relation to sex, I'm always reminded of the joke about the question being asked of somebody, do you smoke after sex? And the guy saying, um, I don't know, I've never looked. <laughs> it it is insane to me that this paragraph exists in this fair mormon document knowing what you and i know and what we're about to show the audience it is it is absolutely 
crazy. You couldn't write this any better if you were trying to write a, a, a detective story where some crazy evidence comes forth at the last minute. It this just, is John this Grisham. Is this is just John Grisham. And also, this is Bill Real because I ta I'm talking to him at Odark 30 this morning. And I'm saying, you know, they, there's these quotes from this 1972 home evening, family home evening manual. And I can't find it. And I'm finding different permutations of the same quote. Um, and Bill, I think in less than 60 seconds, finds an actual page that this is being quoted from, together with additional information that I think show that this really is a smoking gun. Yeah, um, I could put that up right now if you'd like. Oh, would you please? Yeah, I think. Is this it here? Oh, this is the uh, thing. No, Did that's the same thing. Uh, I know. I see Maven's got it there, but yeah, maybe, uh -huh. can you make it bigger? Sometimes I feel like this entire show is just one big double entendre. If there's not, I've got it here somewhere. Yeah, I have it in Google Slides, and so I can't. Was I muted? Did nobody hear that? Uh, yeah. Sorry, RFM. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is great. This is great. So if we if we go to the top paragraph on the left, we'll see that's where the quote comes from. But then okay, it goes on. In the part that the people at Fair Mormon didn't want you to know about. Okay, I, I'm going to read that, but I was going to try to. I think I make one bigger. Let's see here. Let me do that. By the way, we just topped 400 viewers. Way to go, people! Dang it! Uh, bear with us, folks. I'm just. Gonna, I want to make sure that we get this up close because I think it's important. It only took us two hours to get to over 400. Imagine if we were on for five hours. Oh man, let's uh that's how Mormon stories does it, I guess. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that's why they have such a big listenership. They go on for 14 hours. By then they're up to thousands. All right. So this will Beautiful. be a little hard to read, but this is the night this is the very document that Fair is referring to, where they say this may look like a smoking gun, but it's not. Notice the quote in context. Notice it doesn't say that. Those guys are always after us. They're always misconstruing things and sh shame on them. And here we Freaking are. Anti-Mormons. Here we are with the 1972. The reason it was hard to find is because it's actually called the Family Home Evening Journal. Journal. It's page 126. And uh, we can go down here. Well, do you want me to read the top? It, it, oh, kind yeah. of read, read that the... Uh... Definitely that first full paragraph, because I think that's where the, the quotation yep. is coming from. We must come down to the simple fact that God Almighty was the father of his son, Jesus Christ. Mary, the virgin girl who had never known mortal man, was his mother. God, by her, begot his son, Jesus Christ, and he was born into the world with power and intelligence like that of his father. And now, by the way, this is a quote from Joseph F. Smith. From 1913 or 1914, excuse 1914. me. 1914. But he goes on. And this wasn't quoted in the um, the Fair Mormon article, was it? Strange. They didn't include this. I I wonder why. Because he's addressing the little children. Yeah. You ready for this? Oh, I'm ready. Oh, my goodness, guys. You're going to love this. Now, my little friends, I will repeat again in words as simple as I can and you can talk to your parents about it, that God, the eternal father, is literally the father of Jesus Christ. Joseph F. Smith, Box Elder State Conference, 
December, I can't see that, maybe 24th? 20th? I think 20th. it's 20th. 1914, as quoted in Brigham City Box Elder, um, something 28 January, 9th, sorry, you're right, 1913, pages one through two. And then we get this really cool thing. Now, remember, yes, this it is goes on in the Family Home Evening Journal that the church is, publishes so that parents can teach their kids about the true gospel. We've got this is a an great, official, great edition. This is an official publication of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right. An illustration and discussion to help further answer Jenny's question. Jenny. This is probably the fictional Jenny who is uh, asking question. Mommy, Daddy, uh, who is Jesus's father? <laughs> how, how did that happen? Can you tell me? Yeah. The underlining, by the way, we think is the Mormonism research ministry and not in the actual original. Yeah. But um, at this point, discuss in your own words how Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. You might do this using the following illustration on a chalkboard or a piece of paper. There's okay. daddy. daddy. There's mommy. Daddy plus mommy equals what? Equals equals Jenny. Oh, you. I see. Daddy plus mommy equals you. Okay, daddy. I understand. Go ahead. Our heavenly father plus Mary equals Jesus. Oh, I see. All boys and girls have a mother and a father on earth. Your mother and father, of course, are mother and let's see here. Your mother and father, of course, are mother and I don't know what's going on there. And Why? I, because this is this is the, the script for the father to be teaching little Jenny about. That's right. Dad has priesthood and he takes the lead. Got it. So here is the priesthood holder speaking. All boys and girls have a mother and a father on earth. Your mother and father, of course, are mother and I. Jesus is the only person ever born on this earth that is different. Jesus had a mother on earth. What was her name? That's right, yeah, Jenny. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right, Jenny. But who was his real father? Heavenly Father. So you see, Jesus is the only person who had Heavenly Father as the father of his body. Now, I'm just going to pipe in here and say, the moment he goes... Um, go talk to your parents, right? He says, um, yeah, Joseph F. Smith in 1913 is saying, look, my little friends, uh, I'm telling you this much, but for the rest of it, you need to go talk to your parents. Go ask your it. parents, let them tell you the birds and the bees, right? <laughs> it's the only reason to say it. It's the yeah, only this reason. Is like very early sex ed. I mean, the church was for sex ed before the church was against sex ed. Yeah, right there you have it. There it is. No, nobody wants to my folks. Nobody wants to tell Jenny what daddy and mommy are doing to get there though, dude. <laughs> <laughs> They're overshadowing each other. All that we know is that whatever mommy and daddy are doing to get Jenny, that's what Heavenly Father and Mary were doing to get Jesus. <laughs> so you couldn't fair Mormon kills their own argument. In the very paragraph where they mention this document, document as if it supports what they said, when in reality, when you look at the document itself, it crushes all hope that uh, that they could get away with it. <laughs> you know, this is such a huge um, crescendo of a closing. I don't even know if we want to go back and read the rest of that that fair Mormon response because it's all the same kind of stuff. They're never going to get around to quoting Brigham Young. They're never going to get around to quoting. 
uh, Orson Pratt, they're never going to get around to quoting the rest of the 1972 family home teaching journal that they're citing to in their own publication. But they're going to take a whole paragraph to talk about how bad the anti-Mormons are because they don't have time to get around to the actual facts that contradict their position. It is it is insane. Um, the degree is to it which... insane, Bill, or is it so sane that I just blew your mind? Um, what's that reference to? <laughs> I'll let the audience figure that one out. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll say like again. I mean, they're they're trying to act as though their argument is strong because this 1972 thing, you know, it's being misconstrued, but it it's not, folks. Um, no, and what they do is they basically say, hey, it's never been doctrine. Nobody ever really said it. They talk about the literal, and but, you know, they never really say that there was actually penile, penile vaginal uh, intercourse between God the Father and Mary. Therefore, uh, it's not a church teaching, and we can go along. The, one of the things that really surprises me about this when I read this uh, fair response is the quickness with which they are the ones who run away with their ears covered from the obvious fact that church leaders taught this, they come across as being very uncomfortable with the subject and wanting to get away from it as quickly as they can. So they don't have to deal with it. Instead of just talking about it like we have tonight and covering the actual quotes and coming to what I think are reasonable conclusions about what was said, uh, they just wanna put it under the rug with one page as fast as they can so they don't have to deal with it. I don't know why, why are they so embarrassed by what their own church leaders have taught is the question that comes to my mind. Yeah, and and I was telling you this morning. I mean, I I realized that the uh, image of young Mary being um, having a, a grown adult God male come in and essentially say, "This is going to happen." You know, it's got to happen. We got to save this planet. That's the only way it's working. So this is going to go down. And um, that that's a horrible image. And there's a lot of trauma there if you're really going to suggest that. And that's what the church does. And so now they've walked away from it. But I, I don't think the church really sat with that as the problem. It really doesn't make sense to me that they got rid of it. I'm surprised they didn't just say, like, this is how we're different. We really do think God's the father of Jesus rather than this Holy Ghost thing. And um, they could have just stuck to their guns, but I think it's, I think at the end of the day, they made a good move. I don't think in 2022, you want to have that idea floating around. So they're trying to squash it, but it's, it's there and it's there aplenty. Yes. This is more of the vanilla, vanilla ization of Mormonism that we're seeing, by the way, I don't think they have run away from it. I just think that they don't talk about it. They don't teach it. They don't emphasize it anymore, but you will still hear with some regularity, leaders of the church talked about how Jesus is the literal son of Heavenly Father, how he inherited from his father the immortality that was necessary for him to be the savior. I think they say the same things. And frankly, I think that most of them believe the same things. They are just more circumspect in how they articulate it. Yeah. They're more like James Talmadge. Than they are like Orson Pratt or Brigham Young. Mm. Yeah, be a little softer, make it a little more implicit instead of explicit. Right. They have, um, in this way and in other ways as well, become almost masters of the art 
of saying something without saying it. They suggest without um, being express about it. Yeah, completely. So did you have anything else you want to say about this wonderful, wonderful subject, which I think we've covered pretty thoroughly? Yeah, no, I mean, I would suggest folks read the rest of the Fair Mormon. You'll notice they don't deal with any of the quotes that we've pointed out tonight. They try to stay clear of that. And then they act as though they're the trusted source who should be honest about, you know, are being honest about these things. And I just want to know, I have to believe there are a few members of Fair Mormon who watch this show on Wednesday nights. Oh, I hope um, so, because there's one sentence from the end of this that I want to ram up there, Kazookas. Yeah, I, I just want to know, if you're a volunteer with Fair Mormon and you're watching this show and you, you, just, you just want the church to be what it claims to be, and you really want the guys at the top of your organization, Scott Gordon, John Lynch, in the past, Steve Densley, uh, whatever other guys are on the board and other guys that make decisions over there. I just want you to know how dishonest and deceptive your leaders are in that organization that they refuse to really be honest about the issue. And because they could fix this, we've laid it out tonight. If they, if they go forward and don't fix it and don't address it in an honest, forthright way, then recognize that your organization doesn't really want to be honest. And they spend all their time saying things about all the critics that are out there and how dishonest they are. They do it in this first paragraph. I just want you to recognize who tells you the truth. Yeah, we might, I might be crass from time to time. Uh, we might make jokes. We may have a conclusion that you don't like and you're not comfortable with. But I want you to know that if you go back and listen to the 84 episodes of Mormonism Live, you will find Mormon history um, deconstructed, looked at, examined, more than anybody else uh, inside the church for sure is doing. And we're trying our best to, to open all this stuff up so that you can deal with it as it is, and we can stop making excuses for it. Because if the church isn't true, and we've shown in 84 episodes probably 73 times that on one issue or another, it, it isn't exactly what it claims to be at a bare minimum, then we have to deal with that. And we're going to have to tackle that head on and we got to stop making excuses for it and stop handing out uh, one page responses like this, which simply do not deal with the issue honestly. Right. Great points. I want to make two other things. Uh, one of which is that when we're getting ready for this, you found that statement by Harold B. Lee, which was out of harmony with all the other statements that I had found and these others that you had found. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for us to say, okay, that doesn't fit our narrative. We're not going to talk about that. But that's the last thing that Bill and I would do because we want to be able to put all the information that's relevant out there for you that we know of so that you can make your own decision and try and figure out how this goes along in the most intellectually honest way that we're able to do. So that's one thing. That's not what FAIR does. The funny thing is that FAIR takes all of these ambiguous statements, not the clear statements, after uh, avoiding Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and all these other people, and Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce McConkie, they don't get mentioned either. They quote from Stephen Robinson, and here's the thing that they say right here at the last sentence of the penultimate paragraph, where they quote from Stephen Robinson, and they say, if this is the most damning evidence on the subject, no, the penultimate paragraph, yeah. <laughs> Say that again. Pen ultimate. Oh, right here. Second yeah, to yeah. last. Gotcha. Yeah. 
If this is the most damning evidence on the subject, the critics need to rethink their position. It's been done right here. Yeah. What chutzpah? If this is the most, dam well, it's not the most damning evidence. And you know, it's not the most damning it's evidence not. because you guys know what these other quotes say. And you have studiously avoided mentioning any of them in your response. So they say, if this is the most damning evidence on the subject, the critics need to rethink their position. Answer, this isn't the most damning evidence on the subject. And actually, it's fair Mormon that needs to rethink their position. You and I talked this morning. They are either, you use the word, and I totally think it's the right one. They are either inept or they are dishonest. And they have to pick one of those two. And if you're inept, you've now been corrected tonight on Mormonism Live. So any, any time forward, we'll give you whatever, take two weeks. All the quotes are given. You don't have to even do any work. It's all here. We'll even put all the sources in our uh, footnotes of our episode. Um, the work's been done. you got two weeks. Anytime after that, if this article stands up as it is, you're lying. You're being dishonest. You are withholding. You are obfuscating. You are deflecting. You are creating a straw man that isn't real. And unless you deal with this honestly and with integrity, your credibility as a thousand times in the past is gone. It, you you got to fix it. Show us that you're really good at this. Show us that you are honest. Show us that you're willing to fix things. And if you, again, if you're a volunteer and you're just, you just love serving the church at Fire Mormon, you love, you love defending the gospel at the very least, ask the people at the top of your chain to be more honest and to address this issue and to fix this article and not just make it delete, not just make it disappear. Cause that's what I fear they would do. Mm -hmm. I've seen them make people and things disappear before. People like um, you. Yeah, I vanished. So, folks, you have to rewrite it because it's a real question that people do have, and you ought to explore it honestly and forthrightly. Very good. Do we have any time for calls tonight? Oh, Let's by the way, Maven, Maven, do you have any comments about anything tonight before we go to calls? Um, yeah, and this was brought up by several people in the chat, and um. I, I understand that it's not the topic, um, you know, this of today, or I guess the central topic, but just the idea of Mary, uh, you know, likely not having consent and just that consent for women has really never been a thing in the church. And so I think this also just kind of goes in, you know, with that, with Joseph Smith um, and Helen Mark Kimball, and then also subsequent prophets with their very young brides. Um, they've always been, um, just kind of there for the taking. And it seems like Mary was the same um, for God. She had a purpose. And um, yeah, I, I guess that's the part that um, uh, that bothers me a lot. And I, supposedly she was also would have been very young, uh, not quite like the uh, video that we showed from the Godmakers where she did look like an adult. But anyway, that's that's my two cents on it. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Maven. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me uh, very much, very much a concern, certainly more to modern audiences than I'm sure it was 2000 years ago when the story was originally written. But definitely Mary's there saying, be it unto me. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Right. The handmaid's tale. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me as whatever you said. And I forget what the exact quotation is from Luke. But yeah, she's totally accepting. She's the poster child of what a good young woman should do when she is proposed to by her priesthood superior yeah all right luckily here we've got jackson washburn on the line yay jackson action so jackson me... how you doing 
Are you there, Jackson? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. So um, I, I want, because I'm trying to engage you, Jackson, and I, I promise you, I'm going to be kind. I My concern is that I, I would like to ask point blank questions because I, I feel like it would be easy to get off into the weeds here. But do you agree that LDS leaders in a plethora of locations have uh, taught that God the Father, whether that's Adam or Elohim, uh, had sexual intercourse with Mary, the mother of Jesus? Uh, yes, that's a historic fact that I don't contest. Okay. Do you also agree that the LDS Church sets itself up with prophets, seers, and revelators, and it teaches what those men are in a way that they say they can't lead us astray, they teach the truth, um, the doctrine of the church is that which is taught, you know, among all the leadership. Can can you at least acknowledge that the church e- either has to like own that it teaches this, it can't really throw those prophets under the bus without uh, damaging the belief that these guys actually do talk to God and that these men are trustable to deliver doctrine in a way that the rest of us can utilize these men and, and have them benefit our life. Um, could, could you restate that question? I I'm a little confused as to yeah. which point you're wanting. I'll try to, to make it simpler. To. Yeah. Let me make it, it simpler. It, um, um, yeah. We, yeah. So do you believe that, um, and I don't even need your beliefs. Do you believe that Mormonism sets itself up as having prophets, seers, and revelators who talk to God directly, and they are the mouthpiece of the Lord, giving us the truth, the full gospel, um, and and delivering to us in a way that these men can be depended on and counted on to give us the truth, so that we can rely on it to achieve salvation. Uh, yeah, as far as um, uh, Mormonism having a conception of prophets uh, uh, receiving revelation from God, uh, being able to, you know, uh, speak authoritatively on matters of theological or ecclesiastical importance, uh, and being able to, you know, respond to various uh, concerns arise. Uh, yeah, that's something that uh, the church teaches. Um, there's been different conceptions of the, you know, the, the qualities and nature of what that entails at different parts of Mormon history. But uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's part of the theology um, and uh, the specifics of that can vary depending on the members or the particular leaders yeah. uh, that we're talking about it in given Mormon history. So by what you just said, do you acknowledge that LDS leaders seem to not really clearly understand even how they operate and what they are as prophets, seers, and revelators. That they seem confused, that they teach uh, one idea of what prophets, seers, and revelators are, and maybe a hundred ideas, and that at least in some or most of those instances, they don't explain the historical record or the changes in theology adequately. Well, um, in terms of, you know, not being trained historians, not being trained theologians, uh, not always possessing the particular vocabulary or, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, consistent methodologies uh, for, you know, elucidating on that. Are, are they as trustworthy um, no, they, as they say, are they as trustworthy as they say they are at teaching truth? Um, what, what, what do you mean by that, Bill? They clearly tell you that they are the place to go. They're the ones who have the connection to God. They're the mouthpiece. They can't lead the church astray. Um, they've clearly uh, articulated that they don't hide things, that they've been honest. Um, can can you acknowledge that of all the definitions they've given about how the, who they are, how trustworthy they are, how honest they are, that when juxtaposed against the historical record, that that doesn't hold up? Can you, Elder Ballard said they've never hidden anything. Can you acknowledge they've hidden things? Yeah, I, I imagine uh, Elder Ballard is being uh, sincere when he says that, uh, based on his understanding of the matter, um, which itself, uh, within Mormon theology, is uh, never requires a suspension of one's own humanity and being a prophet, seer, and revelator, right? That one's humanity is not inherently uh, mutually exclusive with receiving you know, divine revelation, and that within Mormon theology, what we have is uh, a process of um, receiving inspiration or, or articulating truth or interpreting doctrine. I'm sorry. Um, did I just go deaf? What do you mean? I can't hear anything. Oh, yeah, I, I, can't I heard hear him. anymore. I can't hear Jackson. Jackson, you still there? Hello? Yeah, you can you hear me? Can you guys hear him? I can. Look, give me a second, Jackson. I want to definitely continue this conversation. I'm sure our FM does as well. So give me a moment. Um, I want to see how I can do this. Yeah, he did come back on. We heard him just there, but it oh, okay. didn't like he was gotcha. cut earlier in the middle. It just was silent for a bit. Yeah, gotcha. and, and I don't want to interrupt anything here. What you got a great thing going, but I, I know Jackson called in and immediately got put on the stand and sworn under oath. And now it's, yeah. we skipped direct examination, went right to cross examination. Yeah. I was just wondering. I know there's probably some other people who want to get on the horn here, and Please. I was thinking maybe if we give Jackson a chance to say what it was he called in to say. That'd Please. be great. What do you think, Bill? Perfect. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm. I'll. I'll soften up. Okay, Jackson, your floor. Um. Yeah. Well, I. I just primarily wanted to call in, uh, just to clarify, uh, based on uh, an earlier comment that Bill made, uh, when I initially commented, uh, expressing my preference for uh, the LDS uh, theological concept of spirit adoption as opposed to spirit birth. Um. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the exact quote that he shared, but uh, certainly when I heard it, I felt like uh, Bill was perhaps expressing that, uh, you know, my my preference for that is, uh, well, not just unjustified, but stemming from some type of apologetic motivation uh, in order to, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, retcon Mormon history, Mormon theology into something that's more palatable for myself. Um, and I think the situation is more complicated than that. And that re really doesn't do my personal religious journey justice. Uh, it doesn't do my motivations for the conclusions that I reach uh, justice. Um, uh, you know, so I, I'd like to clarify 
that when it comes to, you know, assessing and uh, uh, exhibiting preference for one of the two schools of thought, uh, spirit birth versus um, uh, spirit adoption, uh, that those are positions that I have informed through, you know, uh, trying to approach this in the most responsible way that I know how as a result of my education and academic training, which is to turn to scholarship, right? And it's in turning to scholarship, um, uh, such as the work of uh, Jonathan Stapley uh, that he's recently published regarding Adam God or uh, 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 work that he's released on uh, the concept and development of spirit birth and uh, the ways that these two schools of thought have existed. And uh, just as uh, the two of you just demonstrated, right, um, by pulling up quotes to clearly demonstrate the existence of uh, the teaching of uh, 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 Jesus's um, uh, physical and literal uh, fatherhood uh, by uh, Heavenly Father um, in the teachings of various uh, Mormon leaders in the past. Um, yeah, you know, I... What, I, what I'm interested in doing um, on this subject and others is, uh, you know, having scholarly informed approaches, but doing good theology as well. Um, and the kind of education that I've sought after is one that uh, promotes uh, mature, you know, theological thought and, uh, uh, you know, of a rather high esteem. So um, I my point with that is, you know, this isn't just me kind of uh, uh, retconning Mormon history because it makes me uncomfortable. Um, you know, what I'm seeking to do is a, a solid theology to really work through Mormonism and present the strongest uh, kind of uh, um, uh, framing of it uh, in my own personal faith and practice and uh, religious devotion. Um, it, it's not something that, uh, you know, I... I just do because I'm uncomfortable or I feel forced in a corner. Um, I legitimately uh, think that uh, adopting a view of uh, spirit adoption is preferable for a variety of reasons, not just to get out of uncomfortable or thorny issues. Hey, Jackson, um, I think spirit uh, adoption. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What yeah. has any LDS yeah. leader with authority taught that spirit adoption perspective that we could see it in any way as a potential teaching that members could accept because a leader has been on the stand and taught it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's why I think it's important to consider the work of Jonathan Stapley here in uh, showing that these two schools of thoughts uh, you know who uh, have. Who's the, um, Jonathan Stapley isn't a church leader, right? You're talking about someone else. Uh, yeah. Who's, what's the church no, leader uh, that's taught this? What Jonathan Stapley does is he carefully traces, using scholarship, the development of these two schools of thought um, in Mormon discourse, using the quotes and teachings of Mormon authorities, uh, and uh, demonstrates, you know, when, uh, for instance, uh, certain ideas enter the record, how they're developed, and uh, the extent to which they've been received within the Mormon tradition. Can you give me um, one can thing you give me that one, I can you give me one example? Can you give me one example in official discourse? where that perspective is taught as, as true and as something that the membership could learn and accept as a different way to see all of this? 
I, I don't have any quotes with me at the moment because I entered this uh, conversation, you know, uh, uh, intending to speak extemporaneously. Um, uh, but uh, with uh, in summarizing Jonathan Stapley's work, um, it's, uh, it, it seems uh, more historically uh, supported that Joseph Smith uh, held a view of spirit adoption and uh, that uh, he did not um, hold to the view of viviparous uh, or viviparous spirit birth that was later introduced into Mormonism by Brigham Young. Jackson, Jackson, I'm sorry. Can I interrupt you for just a second? Only because I don't want to get lost. When you're saying this, is it viviparous? This word you're using, that means Uh, actual sex with God and Mary, right? Yeah. Or or when we're talking about, for instance, the four spirits in the pre-existence, that there's some type of gestation that takes place. Okay, but we're talking, I want to focus... Are you focusing right now on Jesus's being begotten, his physical body being begotten, as we read about in the New Testament? Well, these, these concepts are related to it. Um, that's what I, that's what my original comment was uh, was speaking to. So that's why I wanted to clarify on this particular issue. Okay, I'm glad that you are. So let me ask you this: um, Are you suggesting? Is it your position that there are two different strains of thought by church leaders on the subject of how Jesus was conceived and begotten? Um, uh, physic- like physically within mortality? Um, yes, just no, that. that. That's not what I originally was uh, speaking to um, directly. Um, what I was saying is that uh, uh, the view of spirit birth is what part of what's informing uh, this theological trajectory that's uh, adopted by Brigham and espoused by future church leaders. Okay. So then tied to, as you, his view of Adam God uh, or his garden cosmology, um, as Jonathan Stapley puts it, um, it's, you know, a particular way of interpreting the theological trajectory of uh, Mormon materialism and divine embodiment. Um, But, uh, you know, there are other ways in which uh, Mormonism can be approached and understood using authoritative quotes from Mormon leaders. Okay, got it. Hey, Jackson, Jackson, um, do you feel like you've had enough time to express yourself on the show? Because we've got to move on to other people, but I don't want to cut you short. But you are an important voice in no, Mormonism no. and in Mormon studies. Yeah. And I'm glad that you watch and called in. That, that was uh, particularly the thing that I wanted to uh, clarify. Okay, really good. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you watched. I'm yeah. glad you called in, and I wish you all the continued success with your studies. All right. Thank and, you both. And Jackson, I down bottom of my heart, I think you're amazing, and I, I do consider you a friend and like you. I just I think it's important that we talk these things out and people get to hear how sensible each perspective is and whether one requires you to discard much of what LDS leadership calls truth, and one then has to dive into information outside the church to become informed about lots of other ways that biblical scholarship and biblical criticism and and evidence and data work, and then come back into Mormonism and create a new Mormonism that works for each individual rather than really holding these men's feet to the fire. But I really do appreciate it. And I, I respect you a ton. And 
I'm grateful for you. I just tried to get out of it. Uh, I appreciate the sentiment. Thank yeah. you. Have a great day. I, I just want to say there, RFM, nobody can arrive at Jackson's view unless they spend a lot of time looking at non-correlated sources, doing lots of research and study, knowing what the problems are, trying to figure out ways around it, and then come back into the church with this outside view that goes like, I just can't accept the nonsense. I have to, I have to make it work in an intelligent way. And Jackson is does that. Jackson is sincere in trying to put it back together. And what he ends up with is a Mormonism that not any other member of the church holds. Like if we held those feet to the fire on 50 issues, there's no other Mormon in the church that would go like, yeah, me and Jackson agree. Then it's it's completely different. It's it's its own Mormonism. Yeah, I would certainly agree with you, Jackson. It's intelligent. He's also honest. He strives to be yeah. uh, intellectually honest like yeah. uh, we do, I think. I know I do. Um, and I think that's reflected by the fact that his answer to your first question was, yeah, he recognizes and acknowledges that all of these church leaders that we've quoted, um, have taught that there was physical sexual Congress between God and Mary in order to produce the physical body of Jesus. Now, apparently he does not believe that, or he's gone a different way. Um, but at least he acknowledges that that has been the teaching of leaders of the church since 1852 as we've quoted. And so I think that much is significant. Yes. And if fair Mormon wrote its cheat sheets with Jackson leading the way, they would uh, never they were, be one they, page. If they were half as honest, <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't be one. Page. Or me either. They would never no. be one page. If they were half as honest as him, they'd be probably 35 times more honest than they are. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Next caller here is Sarah Westbrook. Uh, Sarah, you are on the line. Um, what's on your mind tonight? Hi, guys. Um, thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it. Certainly. Welcome so, back. Um, thank you. I, I really love what Maven said earlier, talking about the concerns of no consent. Um, and I, I kind of want to build on that. You know, we talk about was there sexual contact? And I would like to take the Bible story and just say, even in the story where there was no sexual contact, it's still not consensual. If it was some godly IVF, Mary gets informed after the fact that she's carrying God's baby and that she's just supposed to be okay with that. And for me, there's like an outcry for, come on, Mormon church, Where's the accountability? My question is, what message does this doctrine either way, either way, whether it's sexual contact or immaculate conception, like some godly IVF, what message does that send to victims of sexual abuse within the church? And what messages does that send to perpetrators? Because I remember early in my early in my career, I was sitting with a woman. She was she was Mormon. I'm, I'm a counselor, and as soon as you get an active LDS counselor, the Mormon Church like buries you. You drown in LDS referrals. And I remember sitting with the woman who had, goodness gracious, chronic sexual abuse starting very early in her life, and I remember her bawling and saying, what am I supposed to say to my abuser 
who told me that it was the spirit that told them that that's what we were supposed to do. And I can't fight back because even God did it to Mary. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. And that, that's my question. What messages are we sending to victims and perpetrators? Mm. Right. Yeah, totally. Sarah, great comment. I appreciate your calling in with that. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I, I cut her off there before she could say bye, but thank thank you, Sarah, very, very much. By the way, um, uh, Bill, yeah, I just got contacted by Gerardo Sumano, yeah. whom you may know. Okay. He worked for a competitor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he He's affiliated with Mormon Stories and doing a great yeah. job over there. And Gerardo sent us a quote from the brand new Institute manual that the church has produced. And it has to do with the source of doctrine. And this is what it says. Mm. Ensure, this is to the teacher, right? So this is what you got to do, teachers. Okay, institute teachers of college kids. Ensure that all students understand that the scriptures and the teachings of the Lord's modern apostles and prophets are the standard by which we measure all other sources. So... That you're basically saying we can shift and move and change at any moment and anything we taught in the past where our leaders said, this is what it is. And if today we teach something different, then so be it. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Muhammad Ali. They can do Howard all Cosell. of that stuff. But Brigham Young doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Then why do we need – but but when Harold B. Lee – let me say it this way. When Joseph F. Smith taught what he did, he was the living prophet. Right. And the living prophet today will be tomorrow's dead prophet. Right. So in other words, what is it? The the questions don't matter and the points don't count. Like it, it, it's just all a moving rubric. It isn't real. It's It's all made up. Yeah. The whole point is to avoid exactly this kind of discussion we're having tonight. So at any point where you want to think about it, you have to go with the guy who's living. But as soon as he's dead, you get to go with that guy. And then when he dies, you get to go with that guy. And then when he dies, you get to go with that guy. And then when he dies, you get to go with that guy. It, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Go read Charlie Harrell's book. It's all changed, everybody. It's it's not real. So so you, you're Jackson and you, you go get an education and you learn and you focus on reading big books and Suddenly you come back into Mormonism and go, I can't believe it the way these guys said it. I have to figure out some other way to put it together. It's right. It's How insane. bad does your history of prophetic statements have to be to adopt this position? Right. Especially knowing that 20 years from now, we'll be grateful that the guys that are living now are dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right, absolutely. More, yeah. So two more callers. How many? Two more really quick. Two more callers. Thank you, okay? Roberta, by the way, for bringing that to our attention. Yeah. Uh, Big Mama B, please uh, uh, be quick, but certainly get what you want. What you want to say? Uh, you're on Mormonism Live. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for uh, letting me call, and I'll try to um, put my thoughts into words uh, eloquently. And I apologize if I can't. Um, but I think the biggest issue um, that I'm having with all of this is that you know everyone talks about you know this miracle of Jesus and the Immaculate Conception all of this but no one's talking about how mary you know truly feels like um like sarah beautifully stated night and, and i'm sorry if i'm repeating you know all that she said but this is feels like very coerced very brainwashed and like it was forced on her 
And I feel like just like many women, um, especially now with all the politics that are happening, women aren't given a choice. We've never been given choices, never in any um, high demand religion, especially in Mormonism. And I was raised even in a Catholic religion for a bit. And, you know, Mary was worshipped about her virginity. They never talked about her wisdom that was even taught, you know, there are parts in the New Testament where she, you know, taught things to Jesus and to, like, even performing the first miracle of turning water into wine. And I think it's just, it's so unfair because I was unfortunately raped as a very young child and taking that and then being taught that my body had been tainted and, you know, I was no longer being you know, a, 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 even worthy to a man. And again, it was just my body. It wasn't my my brain or nothing else. I was just simply a body, a tainted body. And I also, oh, one last thing real quick about, you know, Mary, she was talked about, again, she was talked about like her body was untainted. She was pure. She was all these great things. Much like, you know, a lamb was sacrificed on an altar. And it's like her body was sacrificed to bring supposedly Jesus into this world. And I think it's just, all of this is just so horrid towards women. And everyone's, again, talking about, you know, did God have sex with Mary? And it's about God and Jesus. But we're not talking about Mary herself. Her body was sacrificed for this. And I think it's just really a disservice towards her and to all of us women. And I think we need to, you know, step back and, forget about, you know, all these um, details and logistics and just think about the, the woman, the person as well. And I hope, I'm sorry if I repeated myself, but oh, I didn't perfect. eloquently uh, speak my, my, <laughs> my look on my heart. But thank you all so much for all that y'all do. And Maven and everyone else in the chat has been just phenomenal. And I appreciate, I appreciate y'all so thank much and you, uh, much love to y'all. Yeah, thank you. Big Mama B, thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate that. Um, Mormonism grooms that... compliance. Oh, Mormonism grooms compliance, and this story is used to get more compliance. The, the idea that there was physical sex insinuates that women should be willing to give up lots of choices. There shouldn't be enthusiastic consent. There shouldn't be space to say no. You, you bow your head and you say yes. And um, all and, and I'm going to get to this sometime here in the next few episodes is to talk at how, about how many places Mormonism grooms compliance. It's all over the place. Anyway, go ahead. And I'd want just to comment about what Big Mama B said about the, the value of Mary in apparently Christianity, not just Mormonism. Her value right. is in her virginity. And like she said, she's not reputed for her wisdom, unless you're going to go back to the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament, and that being the female aspect of the divine feminine, et cetera, represented, and all this other kind of stuff that you could go through. But basically, the character Mary is not uh, valued for anything that I know of. Well, she continues faithful to her son Jesus, even when he's crucified. So there's a few other things, but mainly it's her virginity that establishes her her value and her importance. And I will say just parenthetically in 60 seconds, otherwise I know Dan Vogel will never forgive me, that the virginity of Jesus in the New Testament comes by way of the prophecy in, what is it? It's Isaiah, I think it's chapter nine, about a virgin shall conceive. 
in Hebrew, it's Alma. It doesn't mean virgin. It doesn't have anything to do with sexual activity or experience. It just means a young woman. And then it went through the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, including Isaiah, which used the word in Greek for virgin instead of young woman. And then Matthew is, and the New Testament is talking about that prophecy from the Greek. So in other words, they're adopting it from the Septuagint, the word virgin, which is not really the word that was used in the Hebrew in Isaiah chapter nine. So it comes in this roundabout way anyway. It doesn't really have to do with what we're talking about tonight, but I just wanted to mention that because we're talking sort of about this now in response to this comment from Big Mama B about her virginity being her only value, when that's just sort of a an accident of history, how it came to be a virgin. Yeah. Here's the the last call. This is Roger. Roger, you're on Mormonism Live. We've gone really long tonight, but I think this was super important, and especially the phone calls up to this point. And uh, take us home, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live, and you get the chance to close us out with uh, what your thoughts are. Okay, I just wanted to think about uh, thank you about uh, clarifying uh, immaculate conception that it has nothing to do with Christ, but is a, a Catholic doctrine of the 20th century about. Uh, Mary being born without original sin in order that she could uh, bear the Savior. And it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ's conception. I think that this topic uh, is just like all the other topics that are just extremely maddening to me, is that the the church teaches doctrine. I know I grew up in the 60s and 70s. This was the doctrine of the church. And they're trying to back away from it. They back away with now from all of their doctrines. And so you don't know what in the world the church is teaching now today because they backed away from all the doctrines. Where are the Lamanites? Where are, um, what about uh, multiple marriages? Uh, what about all these principles that we can't go to heaven without? How, how do I go to heaven without slitting my throat properly? Uh, that was taught that I couldn't go to heaven one after another after another the doctrines are falling and they just back away from and say oh we don't emphasize that anymore i I, it it just makes me curious thank you roger to the point where as gerardo uh sent to us it now only matters what the current leaders say and what whoever's died before no longer matters at all so thank you roger i appreciate the call thank you rfm it's been I a long evening, Mr. It has, and I think it was crucial. And uh, I told you this morning, I said, take all the time you need because all these points need laid out. And now when somebody goes to find this question and answer, there is a thorough, honest, forthright uh, depiction of this issue on YouTube by Mormon by Mormonism Live. And I'm just grateful for the chance that... Uh, that we get to to kind of shine a light on this stuff. So well done. With a special appearance by Jackson Washburn. With a special appearance by Jackson Washburn. As himself. As himself. You got it. Anything else from you? No, it's been a pleasure. It's been great. I'm really glad to get this one in the bag because it has been a lot of research and a lot of work over the last uh, several days putting this together. And I appreciate your help with it so much because it would not have been as good without the great finds that you made, including that page from the 1972 Family Home Evening Journal. Ta-da. All right, now I'm going to go overshadow my wife, okay? Whoa.